All right, you ready now, Preston? You sure? I'm really excited about this guy. I know you don't really get excited about these guests, but this is an old friend of mine from Chicago. Amazing pastry chef. I think probably one of the best pastry chefs in America, if not the world. Definitely deserves that credibility. Uh, Andreas Lara spent a lot of time at Noma, a lot of time at El Bulli, really developed his own style. His pastries speak for themselves. I've always hit him up for advice on all kinds of desserts and pastry things. But anyway, he's here in Nashville doing a dinner with us at Iggy's, and uh, he's moving to Hong Kong pretty soon. So I'm glad that we got to sit down with uh, Andreas Lara, one of the best pastry chefs around, very good friend of mine. I hope you enjoy this conversation because uh, we had a really good time doing it. Andreas, man, welcome to Nashville. What uh, what have you been up to? Are we starting? We're, it's already been rolling. We've been starting the whole time. No, it hasn't. <laughs> yes, it Fuck has. off. Has it what really? you think it's going to be three, two, one? Okay. Silence on the set. I thought. Silence on the set. I thought maybe Shh. he'd be like, yo, guys, you're good to go. And Ryan Poli podcast with Andreas Laura. Rolling. And action. Andreas Laura. Is that what you were looking for? Is that what you wanted? I wanted that kind right, of intro. Yeah. Those are going to be the outtakes. Okay. What's up, man? How are you, brother? Good. We it's had, good to see you. It's been a while. Dude, the last, last time I saw you. Tokyo, you were there for Noma. Mm-hmm. I was working for the Chocolate Academy for Coco right. Berry. That was what, 2017? No, that was 2014. Oh my God. 15? <laughs> that was 2015. So it's been, holy crap, it's it's been a while. eight, nine years since I've seen you. But the pandemic is a time warp, man. It was a fucking time warp. Yeah, I think you and I were just talking about that, how that's going to be uh, ingrained in uh, in our time timelines, like yeah. before, during, and after. Uh-huh. We're going to know exactly what we were doing, what it was like during, and then right after, all the weirdness that came with it, right. which is still here. Which is still being weird. Yeah, It's like, where were you during the Kennedy assassination? Where were you during the OJ chase? 9-11. <laughs> where were you during 9-11? Where were you during COVID. the pandemic? COVID, yeah. Uh, so where were you? I was in Vegas, man. Damn. I, I was working at a chocolate school, uh, Melissa mm-hmm. Copel's chocolate school. We were, we were doing well. We had students coming in all the time. I was traveling a lot as well. Uh, had a lot of consulting coming in, whatnot. Everything was good. And then, boom. Yeah. Shit happened. Uh, luckily, I kept my job. We, uh, we kind of pivoted to doing everything online. Um, so it was a weird transition, man. Like, before that, I was also doing a lot of brand ambassador stuff mm-hmm. when I was in Asia. So like a lot of stuff for a chocolate company, traveling around, you know, doing demonstrations, classes in front of loads of people, right? Anywhere from 10 people to 100 people. Transition to Vegas, constantly having group classes, uh, 10, 12, 15 people, interaction, you know? And then to go from that to all of a sudden, nothing, talking to a camera, having a monologue for, you know, some of these classes would go three, four, five hours and there would be students on the other side, but they were asking, typing in questions and then, you know, re- we're reading them from a monitor. Wow. So you become, you become really good at entertaining yourself because you're essentially having a monologue and you need to not only keep yourself entertained so you don't die of boredom, but you need to, most importantly, you need to keep 30 people that are possibly online from all over the world or more or less um, engaged, interact. You know, they need to feel like you're interacting with them. They need to feel engaged. They um, want to feel like you're talking to them, like you're teaching them. But you have, you can't even speak to them. You can't even see their faces. Yeah, so, it was, it was good though. It was, uh, it was one of those things that I don't know if you call it a skill set, but 
it's a skill set learned. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. And you, you, learn on you, you become, uh, you learn to become very comfortable mm-hmm. talking to a screen or a camera. I don't know how you did it. I just no way I could do that. I don't think so. That was a good experience. Yeah. All right. Let's just backtrack a little bit as right. you know, the, the theme of the podcast is how did we get here? So, um, Literally, you drove us from your restaurant today. Yeah, correct. Okay, not <laughs> we, the royal we, is what I'm trying to say. Um, how did you start cooking? I wish I, I wish I had a really romantic story about... Just make one up. Nobody listens to this shit, man. And I hate saying my mom was a terrible cook. Yeah. And I love her to death. She's like the best human being in the world. But she was a terrible cook. Yeah. And I had, I had nobody in my family cooked and baked, let alone... Uh, and, and I'll get back to my mom with that because she's an amazing chef now, amazing cook. But uh, growing up, like, there was no inspiration, you know, culinary-wise. Um, it kind of started, like, my sophomore year of high school. It actually started because I wanted to bake a cake. I wanted to bake a cake for a girl. The idea was great. It was romantic. It was cute. Uh, the date part didn't work out. The girl didn't work out. But in the scheme of it all, I figured out. And even though the cake was horrendous, it was a you know it was a, it was a complete waste. There was something there that kind of sparked something that said, "Oh shit, this this is kind of fun. This is this is crafty. You 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 could actually create something with your hands." And and the other thing was too, I never really saw myself going to a traditional university. Mm-hmm. Like I, I literally had the attention span of a doorknob. In hey, high why school. did why did you think that was? Were you a good student? Were you? I was, no, no, I wasn't a good student. I was a good student for like maybe one subject, you know, that I really enjoyed literature for some reason. Mm-hmm. I, to this day, I still like writing. I still like reading, especially poetry, things like that. But that was the only subject that for some reason uh, I could focus on. Because mm-hmm. literally I just, I just couldn't, I didn't have the attention span. I couldn't sit there in a classroom. I had a hard time retaining a lot of information. Um, and I, I just knew that university wasn't for me. And then when I f- ultimately found something that, engage my senses my taste i I love love food i was a fat kid uh grew out of the fat phase but originally i was like i was an og fat kid (laughs) (laughs) i started as one um and where i could just use my hands and then it there was no time to get bored there were there were so many moving pieces so many things going on and which of course i would find out later on when i would go to school and then start my first jobs that i was my brain could somehow accept that. Like, okay, you could have three or four or five things going on and that stimulation for some reason, like it stuck with me. It helped you focus. It helped me focus. So as opposed to like sit there and read pages five to 10 and answer these questions, like Mm. no fucking way. So there was something about that, that hyper engaged my senses and and I loved it. And then, so from there it was just like, all right, you know, go to the aisles in the grocery store. And every time you would check out, you'd, you know, you'd get those magazines with like the, the baking, whatever. Yeah. They were crap recipes. I didn't know any better though. I was just like, take them home. They were, I think they were free. With it. Yeah, right, right, right. I think they were free. And it's like, hey mom, can we get the ingredients for this? This looks kind of cool. Uh-huh. My mom, you know, bless her. She's like, sure. She had no idea what she was getting <laughs> herself into. Like, yeah, right, right, right. L- luckily, I, I mean, no, I was not clean from the get-go. Now I'm like anally organized and clean. But then it was just like free for all, things mm-hmm. everywhere. But I enjoyed the process. And I, and I think the pivotal moment was, I think you and I were talking about this the other day. There was a book called, um, I think it's The Making of a Chef. You know, back in the day when I would, we would go to like Barnes and Nobles and you just spend a couple hours there just, looking for I would just books. sit down on the ground and just like 
write write recipes in my notebook yeah. out of the cookbooks and go back to the restaurant. Exactly. Like, I got some new Couldn't ideas. afford to buy the books. So right. you just yeah, yeah. write a couple recipes. There's no reason to buy it. You know? Yeah, and it was a nice ambiance. And yeah, no one, yeah. they, they can't kick you out because you're looking at books. Right, right. So I remember this book in particular, The Making of a Chef. And it wasn't even about desserts, but throughout the book, they were interviewing you know, a bunch of chefs and kind of the same question. How did you get started? What did you do? How did you... What was the road you took to, to get to where you are? And the commonality or the common factor that all these chefs or pastry chefs that they were interviewing had, they all said the same thing. I wanted to work for, and irrelevant of whether they went to culinary school or not, mm-hmm. it was, oh, I wanted to work for this person and this person. And I actually wrote like five to 10 different chefs and maybe one or two right. either said yes or I called them and they said yes, whatever. And that was the, the common factor. It was always kind of like, I want to aspire to work for these people. And there was nothing really more after that. It was just like, I want to work for this person. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you go to this chef, you do a good job and then another door opens and it's just like a trickle effect, you know, good things happen if, if you do good and right. Not so. Well, I think it's like in those kitchens, you learn more about who the other chefs are. Yeah. You know, I worked around Chicago and I knew a lot of what was going on in Chicago. And when you get into better restaurants, then you hear about these things of New York and, you know, uh, things that Daniel Ballou is doing or, uh, you know, the, the, this Asian cuisine. This is like back in the 90s, like John George is doing. And you're yeah. like reading Food and Wine magazine. You're reading about these guys. And they were just kind of like getting their footing and starting out and opening restaurants. And the more you're exposed to different like-minded people, they bring their travels and their curiosity into the kitchen. And then it kind of like sparks some conversation. And then it came to the point where I was like, okay, I know I have to leave Chicago. Yeah. Where am I going to go? And then when I left Chicago and I went to California, then it was in that kitchen was like, oh, now I got to go to Europe. And it just kept, every kitchen just kept like leveling up me to like what I need to do and where I needed to go. Because you also meet people in those kitchens. Mm-hmm. You know, you could, you, you could be working for, for somebody for a year and all of a sudden you have a cook or a chef or a stagiaire from another country, from another kitchen. You start engaging them and they start telling you, Oh yeah, at this place we do this like this. Oh yeah, I've come from here, and then mm-hmm. you become curious, and then that curiosity just kind of like it's it's a little seed that gets kind of planted in your in your brain. You're like, right. oh damn, I never thought about going to Japan, or I never thought about going to Scandinavia, and then it kind of stays with you until who knows when. It could be months from that moment, a year from that moment. All of a sudden, somehow an opportunity opened up. You're like, oh crap, I could actually go to. Denmark it's not Oslo. even a dream it's a possibility and you know a couple people or so like i feel like you and i are almost the same like you got the travel bug really early and yeah. you just like you and i we just can't stop fucking traveling man. i think that was one thing i had in my head from a very early uh even before i started like in pastry it was that i didn't know pastry was ultimately going to be my ticket to did that. you want to do savory food Never. I never mm-hmm. wanted to do savory food. I knew that I wanted to travel. I knew that I wanted to see what the world could offer. I didn't know what that path was going to be. And then as soon as I found pastry, I'm like, this has to be it. This this has to be my passport to be able to see the world, to be able to be a part of other cultures, to see how other people live, to, to learn other languages. Like, I'm very grateful that for some reason I wasn't good in school, but languages have kind of come mm-hmm. i don't want to say easily i mean like i half ass speak several languages but nonetheless you could drop me in quite a few countries in this world and i could probably be okay get by right yeah um 
Yeah. So that I, I'm grateful for that. Like it's allowed me to, I think you and I, it's, it's the same. We've probably seen more than 90% of the right. world or at least 90 well, Americans, you know? Yeah. Or someone, I was in, in Bali and I don't know if it was a yoga instructor. There's somebody just like pointed it out. I think it was at a yoga class. And he's just like, um, you know, kind of like ending the class and saying like some words where I was kind of like meditating. And he's like, you know, we're here, we're in Bali, enjoy the moment, live in the moment and just realize like we're here. You're, you're the type of people that you're going to see pieces of the world that 90% of the population will never see. Yeah. You know, little corners of Bali that you're just going to go to to get a coffee that like, you know, people from your hometown can't even, won't even know to be able to find it on a map. Yeah. And at, at that particular moment, it really put a lot into perspective for me to, of, of not being grateful is not the right word, just really put into perspective of like the places I've been and the things that I've done, uh, the friends that I've made along the way, um, the, the people like yourself that like the travel. And, you know, we all kind of have this like, Kindred Lunder Lunderwust. What is Lunderwust? Wonder Wonderlust. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it's it's more than that with like cooks because you know there's there's this part of my brain that like you at an early age, I had a couple the first couple chefs I ever worked for, they're like, listen, if you want to be good in this industry, you gotta travel as much as you can, you gotta see as much of the world as you can. And that was like instilled in my, my first three, four years of cooking was like not like you got to have sharp knives or your jacket's got to be clean or you know all that stuff came with the job also or you have to know every you know butchering technique it was you have to see the world and you have to have like a world view that seemed to be the running theme of all the chefs that I worked for so I was like young impressionable working you know, I didn't go to college just like you. And I was flung into like an adult environment. My friends yeah. were like 30 year olds. And I mean, going back to that, it's, it's, it's scary. Like it I, was, it was a, my, it was a hard time figuring out who I was. And it was a, a dark four, five years for me. It was very dark. And it's lonely because super when, lonely. I mean, I lost tons everybody, of friendships. Everybody. Like any, I mean, literally every high school friend after like a month, it was like, you can't hang out on the weekends. Like, no, how about every Wednesday? Every close high school friend or any close high school friend, I probably keep in touch with like three people mm -hmm. from my childhood. And those are time tested. Like no matter what, you know, they, right. they will be in my life. But, um, you know, you lose soon that, that second, like, all right, you're not going to university. Cool. Everyone else is. All right. You're going to pastry school six months. Boom. You're going to be working full time plus going to pastry school. And then after that, your, your life is the kitchen relationships are done everything your girlfriend that's out the window it's a transient lifestyle and you can no longer relate to those people because they're they're studying they're enjoying themselves on the weekends they've got four years of that they're they're doing all these very collegiate things that have nothing to do with your life anymore yeah. and you can't really talk to them about what you're doing it's like yeah you know i, I got really good at uh molding this uh, or piping this uh that's like what, yeah. what, what, what do you who have cares? to relate to like yeah, who cares? hey we put on a new dish on the menu this week uh, okay cool yeah it was a, it was a real, I still remember this today. It was a real sad. I just remember being like very sad of, I started working in kitchens in high school in like a summer job and it was whatever. But when I graduated high school and all my friends went to college and even the guys that didn't go to college, that stayed the community college, they were still like, 
city workers working nine to five Friday, Saturday off. And I remember like they were throwing a huge party at the lake house when it's one of the guys like lake houses or family's lake houses. And like you should come and and I, I couldn't, I couldn't go cause I, I had to work Saturday. I couldn't take a weekend off. You're yeah. crazy. And I remember I was like, Oh, you know, I, my days off are Wednesday, Thursday. And I just remember them looking at me like who has Wednesday and Thursday off, you know? And, um, that was the last time that they stopped calling me to do things, Yeah, you know? And then like a couple more weeks went by and I would like call them or we'd play phone tag. It was well before texting, you know? And then, uh, I found out like another day they went like a, I don't know if they went to like another event or like a local fair or carnival. I don't remember what the fuck yeah. it was. And nobody called me to ask me because it was just like, well, we know you can't go. And it was like, well, it, at least call me to say no. And that, that was the, that was the turning point of like, you know, and then I'm, I'm at, on my days off, I'm hanging out with like 30 year olds and I'm 18, 19. Yeah. And I was like caught in between this world of like this very adult environment of doing extremely adult things of like these guys sneaking me in the bars. There's drugs all around. Like I didn't really get into like hard drugs like that like at 18 and i was like holy fuck again the chefs that i was working for kind of like don't hang out with these guys don't do this you're on a good road like i had a lot of good people like pushing me but you know that was the life man and all, everybody my age like i i couldn't relate to them anymore and it, 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 i was i was like sad it was it was a very sad three four years for me until i started working at like better restaurants and i started finding people like myself that were my age, that went to culinary school, that were working, they were doing it, but that didn't come to like five years later. I started working. And also people that probably had the same goals as you. Same, same goals. Like, like you, yeah. you were probably geeking out with them about other chefs or, you know, reading cookbooks together saying, Oh, I'm going to go work for this chef. Yeah, dude, I want to go work for there as well. Or, right. you know, or even planning things with other people like, yeah, we should go together. Or, or on our days off, we would, I would go over to like Tim's house and we would just get ice cream and practice our canals. Yeah. You know, that's like what we do. Do like smoke weed and practice canals. That was like so much fun, man. You know, love it. Um, so l let's back up a little bit more. Like, um, you went to, where did you go to culinary school? Then? So, all right. So we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit before culinary school. What I, after I read this book, it opened up, it, it was like that pivotal moment. Like, okay, this is what I want to do. And now I know what I have to do. I need to start knocking on people's doors. I'm mm -hmm. still a sophomore in high school. Not ready. I can't go to culinary school yet, but fuck it. Just start knocking on people's doors. So I would remember, I remember there was a, a magazine called Pastry Art and Design. It would come out oh, monthly. So, so I would I would always Is go that to still around. I, I don't think so. I think there's a digital version of it. Yeah. So I would go to Barnes and Nobles uh, every month when it would come out and I would look to see if there were any chefs that were featured in there that were in Chicago. Sure. That's where I was at the time. And uh, after a couple of months, you know, I have like a couple resources and whatnot. I'm like, OK, cool. I would literally, and like how naive I was, I would I would literally like call the kitchen number. <laughs> I would call the Ritz Carlton Hotel asking for the kitchen, asking for at that time, and Ming Su was the pastry chef yeah, at Ritz Carlton. Yeah. Like fucking sixteen year old, like why would these people even take the time? Like so, long story short, got hung up on many times. I, everyone was kind enough, not kind enough. I think they had to take the phone call thinking sure. it was something important. I was probably calling them in the middle of production or service and they probably wanted to tell me to fuck off. You know, I was 15, 16 years old. So I got rejected a lot, but I also got accepted a lot. And I had some really shitty experiences in kitchens uh, at 16 where I was like, no, there's no fucking way I'm doing this. And then 
and I told you the other night, the 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 moment, the stage at 16 that like set everything in motion for me, it was at a restaurant called Trio. Um, it was before Grant Atkins was at, at Trio. Um, I think it was Sean McLean. Sean McLean. Sean McLean was right. the yep. chef there. And I didn't... I, I, I only you were knew too pe- young to even realize what the fuck was going on. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> yeah. I'm like trio. Okay. It's in Evanston. That's not too far. Mm-hmm. Della. She was super nice. Della Gossett. Della Gossett, man. She's Legend. like, yeah, come hang out for the weekend. Cool. So I go and after, this is mind you after having a couple really shitty experiences where I didn't even get thrown into pastry. I got thrown into like the savory side and hated it. Um, and I get to Della's kitchen. You know, it's the first time I see like a separate pastry section. Mm-hmm. Or let alone room, right? Yeah. And trio. Normally it's like a folding table. <laughs> so that was that was that was like, oh shit, this is cool. And then and I remember at that time her whole brigade uh, were females. They were meticulous, they were militant, but they were very nice to me. Like gave me tasks, really mundane tasks. Yeah. Of course, I had no experience, but anything I wanted to try, cool. Any questions I had, like stupid things like, oh, what's this? Or how do you you know, really naive questions. I didn't hadn't even gone to culinary school. They didn't mind answering, especially Della. Like, gave me a ton of stuff to taste. That was the first time I saw pat de fuis in my life. I'm like, wow, these things are so beautiful. Yeah. You know, uh, seeing uh, ice cream and sorbet being churned in a restaurant and like a canal for the first time. But oh. you, no, but no point of reference other than no. You go to the grocery store and buy ice cream. Exactly. No idea how the fuck it was made, and now there's a machine. And you're tasting it as it's coming out. Like, that's a game changer, man. Caramelized pineapple for the first time in my life yeah. I saw out of Della's kitchen. Like, holy shit, you could do that to a pineapple? You could yeah. do that to a piece of fruit? That was the first time I was like, wow, this is really enjoyable. I can't believe, I, 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 don't, I didn't realize that 12 hours just went by because it was just like a day full of wonder. And I want to do this because there's people like Della out there. Like there's going to be a lot of assholes, but there's also going to be a lot of people that want to teach you right? and want to nourish you. And obviously you need to, it goes both ways. You need to work your ass off. You need to be disciplined. You need to do shut up and get your job done. But there's going to be those people that are going to take the time to, to allow you to become who you ultimately could be. And, yeah. Right. I and I, you know, I never, after that, I never worked for Della, but I, I do owe her like, uh, that was she. She was my write her a letter. Write her a letter. I think I might have messaged her, her on Instagram at some Just point. Write her a letter, man. Send her a note. <sighs> Della, if you're listening, which you're probably not, because nobody listens to this. Nobody listens. to Andreas this. Andreas Laura would like to say thank you. All, all two. It's viewers. all your fault. <laughs> it's all your fault, Della. She's like, why are they talking so much shit about yeah, me right yeah. now? Um, um, so that was the, that was the moment. So that was the moment, and then again, it was all it was, it was these series of little moments. Okay, trio, Della, cool. Then I ended up knocking on the door of again i had no idea what i was walking into uh rick bayless's from terra grill oh, right on, yeah. Bumpo. yeah again i'm like great okay, guy. who's rick bayless this place looks yeah but like if you're gonna knock before. on a door to talk to someone but it wasn't because of him it was because i was trying to follow the pastry chef there again who was uh, the pastry so chef? at that time um her name was laura is laura pfeiffer some mexican woman who had studied you know she was french trained she was related to jackie Yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to I'm, that. I'm getting yeah, into it. Okay. So same thing. Call yeah, her up. I, I know her. Can yes. I come yeah, chill yeah, out? Yeah. Not chill out. Can I come stage? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I started as literally 
one Saturday. I used to work at Trio, you know. <laughs> like I used to work. I was Della's, you know, assistant for a day. <laughs> exactly for a day. That, for a day. That's going on my CV. I bet you people put that on CVs nowadays. Oh, hundred percent. I, oh, I, I stashed yeah. a linea for so, a day. For a day, yeah, yeah. And same thing. Wanted to, you know, seek out Laura, and she let me in. And it was one Saturday that at the end of my shift, do you want to come back? And I was like, uh, Wait, is it? What? 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 Is it possible? <laughs> uh, next Saturday? She's like, yeah. And then that Saturday, I'm like, so can I just keep coming back on Saturdays? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. So that I mean, was such a different time, man. I, I wasn't getting paid, but who cares? Yeah, I was who cares? Fucking, right. exactly. I was going into my junior year of high school. So, and I didn't know who Jackie and Sebastian were at mm-hmm. this time at the French Race School. I, I was just like, what oh, year was this? Uh, this was what? I graduated in, oh, I want to say it was like 19... 19- 97? So Jackie Pfeiffer and Sebastian Cannon, they left their jobs at the hotel by they then. Opened and they opened up the, the old studio. Sco- the, yeah, the studio, That's which I, I never classes. saw, but you saw. I took classes there in like 90, it had to be 98. Then they opened up the, the new school the at the school, time. yeah. And so what had happened was, okay, I, I realized Laura Pfeiffer was married to Jackie. Mm-hmm. Who's like, like one of the... Most badass pastry chefs in again the country. I had no idea, <laughs> right, right, right. and she. But the way she put it was like, "Oh yeah, my husband. He he's opening a, a pastry yeah, well, school. Yeah, my husband. He's got a little school. Yeah." You know? And I was like, "Cool." And um, they were still doing continuing ed classes. They hadn't started the full six month program. Sure. Okay. So they were doing a petty for class. Okay, I'm a junior in high school. Yeah. I was like, "Mom, and I saved some money up for the class. It was like a two or three day petty for class. I'm like, mom." It's during class. School. I mean, it wasn't cheap either. No, fuck no. It was a couple cheap. hundred bucks, man, for like yeah. a couple days, you know. I was like, mom, can I ditch school to go take a class in the city? No hesitation. She's like, she didn't understand what this whole pastry thing was, but she saw that I was into it. Yeah. Like, she she had no idea what I was, what her son was getting She probably into. saw that it was like a positive influence. <sighs> At least have. you were into something, but you know. But she was ridiculously supportive, like didn't hesitate. I don't know what other mother would have allowed your student, her her son or, or daughter to ditch high school for three days to go take a, a, a petty, petty four class. <laughs> so that's what I did, man. I, uh, I took the train, put my big boy pants on, took the, took the train to the city. Um, I was like 17 and there's all these grown ass people taking a, yeah. and they're all professionals. Professionals, man. And there I am. And I'm like, this is awesome, guys. Yeah. Like, there I got to, that was the new school. They hadn't started the program yet, but I'm like, holy crap, like a blast freezer. What is that? Like copper pots. Like, yeah. Everything's pristine. Everything's beautiful. There's a system for everything. Everything's methodical. I was into it. Mm-hmm. And that's when I got to, you know, Jackie taught the class. And then that's how I ended up going to the French pastry school. So it was just these series of events. Okay. I got in the door with Fr- at Frontier Grill. Laura Pfeiffer was there. That's this crazy. Was her ex-husband. She got me into the school. And so. Don't you think that's how it was supposed to happen? It must've been. It I mean, had to have. How I, other way could it have happened? I'm sure that, you know, one random day, had I not gone to Barnes and Nobles and picked up that book, I probably would have gone down. I, I see. I, I go back and forth on this. I think you were seeking something so hard your brain was seeking this information that you would have wound up there, even though it would have been a different road, mm. you would have wound up eventually at the French pastry school. I think I so. think you just bypassed it by like hanging out with the guy's wife. 
That sounds so you weird. Would, right. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds weird. so weird. But I think like you would have you would have kept going to these restaurants. You would have kept calling places. Yeah. If you didn't pick up that magazine, you would have found another way to get into the industry somehow. Yeah, I agree. You know, whether your parents would have helped you or, you know, I remember when, when, when I first started cooking, my one of my dad's old partners or something, you know, I was 17 or I was graduating high school, I think. And um, they were on a cruise and they were talking to the chef of the cruise and they were saying like, oh, you know, my, you know, my friend's son wants to become a chef and he's working at these restaurants. And the guy Gates said some advice. I don't remember what the advice was. And they came back and he's like, hey, give him this. And it was a toque. It was like a, a paper toque. And I was like, this is the coolest. Like, I didn't know that you could buy a case of them for like five bucks. And like, at the end of the day, you throw it away. Like, but I was like the coolest thing. And the guy like signed it and said, best of luck, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, they had brought it to me and said, hey, listen, this guy said, um, you know, think about uh, cruise ships. It's a great way to travel. You're going to learn a lot of like organization. So it, every, when I put it out to the world that, you know, I wanted to like work at restaurants, like, even people that had no fucking idea what they were talking about, everybody wants to help. Yeah. You know, my dad's friends were like, oh, we're on a cruise. We talked, here's a toke. Like, this guy says, think about cruise ships. And, you know, um, I was watching Julia Child, and I was picking up things there, and I was helping my mom make cookies. And it, it, I was just immersed in it. And I feel like you were immersing yourself in it also, and, like, knocking on doors, which you had the in- intuition to go and do that. Like, that's like... <sighs> Like at a young age, that's like a very adult fucking mature thing to do. I have a feeling that you and I, we have a lot of similarities, but and correct me if I'm wrong. We have that thing in us that we don't like to suck at something we do. And if we find something that we love, it's like you go boss. You, you go yeah, all out on like it. Obs- it's and obs- and it's you become obsession. obsessed where to the point where you either become good at it or you want to understand it better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Kitchen aside, it could be anything, right. you know, for you, it's BJJ, you know, I, we both have that love for martial arts. I don't do it as much anymore. Um, staying CrossFit, healthy, eating staying right, healthy, staying healthy. Oh, you know, you it's, know, it's you grab those three or four things in your life other than your job and you just go, you're like hyper intensely focused on those things and you want to do them to the best of your ability, better than everyone else right. or at least people around you because it just becomes like, All right, I'm not, I don't need to do a million things, but the three or four things I'm going to do, I'm going to fucking do them amazing. Yeah. And, and, I think that's that's you know ultimately probably something that helped that early on too. Like, okay, I found this. I'm gonna do whatever it takes and find out as much as I can to see if this is gonna be my reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was it was a it was um, a big wake up call really fast, man. Like going to pastry school and then literally like jumping on a train when class was over, running over to Frontera, working full time. Oh, they, you're working also. Yeah, oh, I was okay. working full time, yeah. man. So like, I had no life. I had zero life for those six months that I was in pastry school. Sundays would come because that was uh, Frontera was closed. Yeah. So I would work Saturdays. Sundays would come. I was a freaking zombie. <laughs> like I would get back home Saturday night. Uh, sometimes my mom, again, her and her, her now husband at that time, boyfriend, they would sometimes pick me up in the city on a Saturday night, like just so that I wouldn't have to take the train to the Howard train. and then back yeah, from Howard to the on the train and Mr. Stop. Dude, and, yeah, I oh, saw how many so times, many man. shady things on that, yeah. on that train, like that late at night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, For me, it was the train. I when I was living with my parents by Midway Airport, the, yeah. the orange line would stop running at a certain hour. Yeah. So if we were like 
fucking around in the cleanup, I'd miss the train and I'd have to take like seven buses and then like walk three miles just to get home. And I never wanted to fall asleep on that train that Never. Late. Oh man, you missed your stop, you're done. No, not even them. And I saw some shady shit yeah, on that train. Yeah, that's like, I, the I, I was stop, yeah. literally, I, I was kind of scared. I'm like, dude, I'm 17 years old. I'm yeah. riding the train back midnight. at like midnight. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. All senses, like, you know, you're wide awake. Uh-huh. Like, Don't fuck with me, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a tough six months, but it was good because it gave me a, a harsh reality of what the business was going to be like. Sundays, I was a zombie, had no life, had no friends, lost my girlfriend, et cetera, et cetera. But it is what it is. That's what it became. Yeah, but you had your work friends. Yeah. Who yeah. were all, who are all ages. The all youngest of- one was probably like 25 at the yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> but they were like all races, ages, some of them didn't even speak English. You're yeah. just like, yeah, that's my friend. And the <laughs> drama. I quickly got introduced to kitchen drama. Like, holy fuck. It was Man. like, kind of like high school. You're like, holy crap, this stuff happens. A lot of politics happening, going on. Politics. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, you got to do this for this person to get here. And that person's dating this person. And oh, fuck me. Like. All right, so you graduate from the Fresh Pacer School. Was a diploma like a sugar, like a pulled sugar diploma? No, it was a pulled sugar diploma. <laughs> yeah, graduated from was the Was Mars just like... <laughs> yeah, rolled out diploma, burnt the edges. Yeah, like, burnt the edges. Like a scroll. <laughs> um, finished Pacer School, ended up doing another year at Frontera. Uh, so I was there for about two years, including the time that I was where in high is, school. Where is Laura Fife for now, man? I don't know. I, haven't, I, yeah. I lost complete touch with her. I know that she opened up a... I want to say like a Mexican bakery, like probably 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think it's called Bonbon. I think you're which right. Which is like candy or chocolate. I think in, you're right. Spring. Yes. I have no idea if it's still around. Who was now. teaching at the French pastry school back then? So I think I was very fortunate because at the beginning, uh, obviously it was just Jackie, Jackie and Sebastian. Jackie Sebastian, yeah. Um, one of their assistants at the time, John Krause. John who, Krause is legend, yeah. John Krause is... Probably one of the people who's not only been most influential in, in my life, but he's been like a father figure, a big brother figure, a very good friend to this day, a mentor, all those things. It's just an all around amazing human being. Mm-hmm. For me, he's probably one of the best American yeah. pastry chefs like that this country oh, has ever seen. Down. Do you know Bob Hartwig? I do. Yeah. So Bob, I'm very good. Me and Bob worked at Mango together, which was That's down, right. the street, down the street yes. from Frontera Grill, which was Probably the same time that you were there. Yes. 97, 98, 99, more or less. Yeah. I, all the years are. Yeah. All together. those people. That, so yeah. I, we were literally two blocks away from each other back in 98. I was starting out. You, you already, were starting out. Yeah. I was. I That was my That's first crazy. introduction. That was my first introduction of like getting out of the Southside restaurants and the country clubs working at. This was like a real kitchen with like people my age. And Bob was the pastry chef. I, I've known that motherfucker for like almost 30 years now, man. Damn. He seems like a cool guy. I, He's I amazing. Only, I only met him a handful of times, I think, when I went to visit the school. Yeah. But so John was... But he's very good. That reminds me, that he speaks very highly of John also. So John was uh, an assistant there and it was crazy because John had was already a pastry chef at that mm-hmm. point. Like, dude, dude had worked in amazing places in London. Like, he was an established pastry yeah. chef. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a family. He was married at the time there to somebody. And he's, he decides to just take a step back and like put himself in and stagiaire shoes ultimately. Yeah. And that was, I think that had a big impact on me that it was never too late or to learn or to go take a step back. It doesn't matter if you already got that title of pastry chef or whatever. At some point you could be like, you know what? I'm going to take a break and take a step back and just go stash somewhere for six months, for a year. And just become a student all over again. And and that's very refreshing. And it was also very humbling um, to see somebody that at that caliber who could have had a 
good paying job, could have worked anywhere, just say, no, nah, I'm going to, I'm going to take a step back and work for free. That I needed to see that because that was that, that, that it was this little seed of discipline and what it takes to make it that he instilled in me just by seeing, just by him opening my eyes to like, holy shit, you're working for free. You're already a even the self-reflection, self-awareness to yeah. be like, I'm good. I'm on this road. I could be better. Yeah. Here's an opportunity. Or that I, I, I want to learn something completely different and completely from different. somebody that could offer that to me. So yeah. I'm going to take a step back. Yeah. So it was a cool time to be at the French place. I was literally the second class to graduate because every week I either had Jackie or Sebastian mm-hmm. as an instructor. And as the years went by, as the school got bigger, they aren't teaching as much. Yeah, they yeah. bring in, you know, an armada of, of instructors who were all amazing, but ultimately like to be able to have had Jackie show you how to do Vinoiserie or, uh, the things he was very passionate about, you know, show pieces, which show I, pieces, I, yeah. I don't like show pieces, but at that time you're just like, wow. And then to have Sebastian, like, you know, show you, talk to you about technology, like you think who's talking about technology, like food science and that in, in terms of confections and, and, and ganache and ice cream. That was the first time I learned that ice cream is not just like, here's some eggs and cream. No, not, there's no fucking way, man. And Absolutely I geeked not. out yeah. on it. I loved it. Yeah. Like, Oh, you, you need to use these sugars for this reason. And, and if you want it to freeze like this, you do this and you need to use these hydrocolloids for this function and uh-huh. blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden it wasn't just pastry anymore. It was like, Holy shit, this is science too. And it's exact. And, and for some reason I'm comprehending this and I sucked as a student in school. But for some reason, but I'm a mathematician now. But yeah. holy shit. I'm the same way. And, yeah. And, yeah. And math class. Like I look back at high school math class. I'm like, the only thing I use now are fucking percentages. That's it. Everything man. else is like a waste of time. When I, when I took those classes at that little studio, it was like six. It was the same thing. It was like, I was 17. There was like pastry chefs from Vegas that were running like 10 outlets there. Yeah. And I'm like this kid. And um, Jackie, if it's bad, I remember we were tempering chocolate and. I was having a hard struggling with it and Jackie saw and he came up behind me and he, he, he took my hands and he like showed me how to do it. Like you don't, you know, from like a master pastry chef, yeah. like those moments, like those are the moments that shape you as a person, as a cook, those moments that I remember of like looking back now, you know, as, as I get older, it's like when, the first time I ever had sea urchin, or first time I ever saw sea urchin, was at the French Laundry, and Thomas showed me how to clean it, open it, and just stuck a spoon in there. I was like, I never, what is that? I never tasted it before. And he just shoved it in my mouth. And I was like, holy fuck. And he's like, what do you taste? And we talked about what you're tasting. It's like, those moments of talking to these guys at the peak of their greatness, it like instills this like fire and passion that you want more like those are the things that i remember and it's not just the moment but it's the fact that that person took that that they took the time in that moment to share it with you yeah to show you something or saw that i was struggling especially when you're here and they're here they're there for them to take two minutes and be like taste this what do you think of this right To, to to acknowledge your being a human in that kitchen when you feel like you're just a fucking robot right in most kitchens right with when you're at the bottom that that that's that moment becomes kind of crystallized in time and you have that forever mm-hmm. and, and like you said i have several of those little moments that might have lasted two minutes but they make this beautiful that's timeline yeah and that's, that's what, what you, remember. you remember you forget all the bad shit you forget i mean how much bad shit have we gone oh through oh my god how many times people screamed at me or thrown rotten fucking apricots at me 
But you know, I remember the good times, man. But one of the one of the things that like I kind of like like when I say that you, you you take those seconds or moments and you crystallize them in time. I remember it was plated dessert class with uh, Sebastian, and of course the desserts were, were great and everything tasted good. But it was more the impression he left on me wasn't the recipes; it was the way he talked about it, the things and how he worked. It was like the spoon goes like this, mm-hmm. the napkin goes like this. A tool for every function, every container has its place like, it was all about yeah, it was he was yeah. essentially breaking down the word mise en place in the most articulate way and and that was one of those fuck me moments i i need to be like that i want to be a fucking militant machine where everything's lined up perfectly if i see a speck of water on the sink i'm gonna freak out because the hair on my arm stands up and i can't take it i want to be immaculate and i got that from sebastian like mm-hmm. i you know i think my mom instilled a lot of discipline uh just because they, they were quite I don't, they weren't hard on me growing up per se, um, but they were very kind of like old school Latin parents. So like, you need to make your bed. You need to have your yeah. things folded like this. Uh, when you're at the dinner table, elbows can't be on the table. Like everything had to be aligned. So I think that carried over to pastry, to cooking. And then, you know, you, you meet people like Sebastian that all of a sudden just like, this is how it has to be. Well, it has to be what, but it's also a reason. It's not just like, oh, this is how it is. So exactly the the reasoning behind it is there's a place for everything. Is, is a- what makes it, you know. And then for me, it was always like you went to the next restaurant or you went to your next job, and you took those things that you used and you were a little bit better. You were you were a little bit more organized. You kind of like could adapt a little bit better. Yeah. And um, you just keep going and going. You know. And and you, and you see that too, and I think people notice that too. Like when when you're because it's not every chef and not every pastry chef is, is extremely organized or extremely meticulous or extremely like OCD. You know, I think I think we all want to say we are, but the reality is they're not. Some chefs are the most disorganized fucking people I've ever seen and it's it's magical what they do. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, Holy fuck. And that's and then fine. You're like, wow. And that's fine. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's always like one of those, those um, moments of pride when you walk into a kitchen and somebody... You know, after a day, they're like, oh, wow, you're really organized. Or like, oh, I can see you like things like this. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and you don't even have to have a further conversation. You know what they're talking about. Yeah. It's that, yeah, you're on point, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, or you could, uh, someone told me you should be able to blindfold yourself and walk onto your station for service and know where your salt is, where your pepper mill mm-hmm. is, where the oil bottle is, where your garnishes are, where, where the plates are, where your cutting board is, where your knife is. And that, that was instilled in me of like, every day you put the salt in the same spot because it's muscle memory. I'm turning around. I got my lamb saddle, my salts here. Boom. My peppers here. Boom. I turn around my pots, my pans already on the stove. I grab the oil. Boom. Lamb goes in and it's it's down your board, fold your towel, put it back. Like after every pickup, wipe the board down, fold the towel, put it back. Knife rests on top of the towel. And it's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful, man. And when you're humming and you're going and you're just like, bam, and you're in that zone of just like working. It's so great. And it's, it's even cooler when you, that trickles down to your staff, to mm-hmm. your team, where all of a sudden they become that too. Like without you saying it, just because you've instilled that, you've showed it, you've demanded it every yeah. day. And sometimes like I remember being in Asia and like I wouldn't even say sometimes I would literally walk over to my staff, fold their towel for them, put it back a line. They would look at me like, yeah, chef. Okay. Like you get it. Uh-huh. And then it gets to the point where they're not going to let me walk over and do that anymore. So right. they just start doing it. I had a, one of my, my team in Singapore, uh, I was working for Jason Atherton. 
probably the coolest pastry setup I've ever had. It was at the time it was called Pollen, named after uh, his flagship in uh, in London, the One Star uh, Pollen Street Social. We had a beautiful uh, dessert bar that was in the middle of the dining room, and so we had counter seating there, so everyone in the dining room could see the pastry team work, and they could also move over from the dining experience to the dessert counter, and you could plate for them. Mm. Um, and the team I had there, they were all female. Actually, almost like all three, four years between Singapore and Hong Kong. We'll get to that later. But <laughs> it was all female teams and some of the best teams I've ever had. And I remember like it got to the point where like, because we had a lot of desserts, you know, and there were a lot of components and blah, blah, blah. So we would have like everything laid out by like, okay, the sections for this dessert that, 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 mm-hmm. that, that across the line. We had a really beautiful space. It got to the point where they would start drawing diagrams of the setup. Yeah, like like a like a fucking map, like a quest, and then they would laminate it and and they would just put it down so that everybody knew this is exact. This is the spoon for this crumble. This is the spoon for this canal. Not that like it's separate from that ice cream. This piping bag goes in here. Everything would be labeled, but it was like that was one of those moments. Like, yeah, this is cool. Mm -hmm. That's my team. Fuck man. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's get back to Chicago, late '90s. You graduated. You got your your sugar diploma. Yeah. Um, so after, so I kept in touch with John John Kraus. Yeah. Um, after Frontier Grill, I ended up working for for John at um, he was at the Park Hyatt at the time. Uh-huh. So it was cool because I got to have John as like a teacher assistant at the pastry school, and then he was my he was your chef. Yeah. He was my chef. That's dope. Uh, again, like was, was he the pastry chef there? Was, I didn't know he that. Was, he was. Mm, it was shortly after the Park Hyatt Chicago opened. So he wasn't the opening with pastry Sandor chef. Gamba. That was the opening yeah, so chef. Sa- yeah, Sandro yeah, was my yeah, exec yeah. chef. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew Zimmer. Andrew Zimmer. He no. An, no, it was uh, no. A- Andrew, Andrew came after that. But, they hired the French guy after him, right? I was there when Andrew Super was there. Super tall French guy. I was there during Andrew's time. What year was that? No, sorry, I'm, that was two separate times. No, yeah. no, no, let's backtrack. backtrack. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So Sa- Sandro was the exec chef. Um, John Krause was my pastry chef mm-hmm. there, and. It was it was great, you know. That I, was right when it opened, right? Yeah, it was yeah. right after the opening. Um, it was re, it was enjoyable, you know. I got to continue learning in the style of the French pastry school because ultimately John was, you know, a disciple of that, mm-hmm. and, and so we were doing a lot of. It was cool because I I had already been groomed by Jack and Sebastian, so you go in there like I know what dextrose is. Yeah, and, yeah totally. I know how to balance <laughs> a sorbet recipe. You know, I know how to make the flourless chocolate cake. <laughs> and, and, and it's cool. But at the same time, you get a lot of looks from these like 30 year olds that are like, they never went, they didn't get that education, but they'd already been grinding for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so they think all of a sudden you're like, who the fuck is this kid? Yeah. That's the worst part. So yeah. you, you needed to very quickly realize, okay, you can't, you know, stuff, your hands don't have the, the experience that these other people do, but you have, possibly more in your head so you need to you need to keep grooming what you have in your head you have to keep nourishing that all the food science etc cetera, etc cetera, because you're already ahead of them in that but you also now need to nourish your hands and you need to get to where they are with your hands so that ultimately you have this complete package so you know it's it's that fine line of uh not becoming this pompous little asshole at 18 or 19 and just shutting up and like knowing what you know but then taking that's everything else in that's so hard and it's very hard to do and i saw <laughs> and i saw it in many kitchens uh, as as a cook and as a pastry chef that you know students that would come out of the CIA or the French pastry school Kendall Kendall wherever that like they just went in there thinking they were the fucking chefs totally. and and knew it all and you're like shut the fuck up yeah you know um so John ultimately 
left the Park Hyatt. He went back to work with Jackie and Sebastian as a full-time instructor. Full teacher, yeah, okay. So I was like, John, you got to send me somewhere, man. You're leaving me. You got to send me somewhere cool. Uh, you know, you got to send me to, yeah, what to a chef. Do? So he sent me to um, what ultimately became one of the real, like, hardest experiences of my life. Um, so at the time, and nothing but respect for the man now, but at the time I was pretty miserable. Uh, Pascal Janvier was uh, this chocolatier pastry chef, old school dude from Normandy. He worked for uh, Barry Calibo for a really long time. Now he lives in Australia. Um, I don't even know. I think he might be retired at this point. Was in Chicago? No, 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 no. So John and Pascal had done a competition together. Uh-huh. Pascal was always in the magazine. So I always, I always got to see his beautiful entremets and, and stuff. And he had a pastry shop in Los Gatos, California. Jesus. A little tiny ritz. fuck? Yeah. So, John, where are you going to send me? And it was between going to work for Thomas Haas, who I really wanted to work for in Canada. But, yeah. like, Canada, for some reason, seemed out of reach. And but Los Gatos was more <laughs> tangible? I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. Thomas, it's, <laughs> you know, Thomas is like, what, you know who Thomas Haas is? I don't think so. He what worked, restaurant? He was one of the first kind of, like, name chefs of Danielle in New York. So before before anybody was there, he was the first kind of pastry chef to make a name for himself. German dude. He then left Danielle um, to open up his shop in, in Vancouver. And who took over for him at Danielle? Dominic Ansel. No, this was way before. Way before. Um, there was a guy, Francois something. Oh, oh, um, oh, I remember. It was a dude that had this, he not, became famous for this. Not like, Jacques Rice Torres. No, uh, Francois, not Payard. No, not Payard. Not Payard. Payard was there, though. Payard no, worked was, with Danielle way before. way before, way before, well before our time. There was another chef anyway, that took yeah, after okay, Daniel, yeah. And then ultimately it was um, Dominique. But um, yeah. yeah, I never got to work with Thomas Haas. But I, yeah, I, I, whenever I was in Vancouver, you know, he's a really cool guy. What restaurant was he at? Or he has his own pastry shop. He has a shop. He has a beautiful shop yeah. um, that's been Still running. there. Yeah. And he was doing wholesale chocolate for a really long time, like supplying all the Ritz Carlton's in the US. Yeah, fuck. He's a machine. You know, he's a he's a marathon biker, like yeah. like us. He's you know, he Journey. loves being active, <laughs> fit, disciplined as fuck. And all his, his staff always looked so happy to be there working yeah. working for him. Like always wanted to work for him, never did. We had a lot of common friends. So anyway, so you go to Los Gatos. <laughs> so I go to Los Gatos, California. In the very, Brussels sprout fields. <laughs> very ritzy little suburb next to San Jose. Yeah. I, I couldn't live in Los Gatos. Was Manresa there at the time? Was Manresa? This was before Manresa. Jesus Christ. Man. Or no, no, no. Manresa was there. It, I think it had just It had to be brand new, so, huh? This was, er, what, early 2000s? Yeah. So What year? Wait, what year? Hang on. What year was this? This was early 2000s. Dude, me and you have been following. So I was at the French Laundry in 2001, 2003. Okay, so, so I was... Me and you were like following each so other all I was, all I was around, like an hour right? away from you. You were too. an hour away at Las Gatos, yeah. All right, so this, this, is, this is it. I'm, I'm moving to San Jose, California, right? There's very minimal information on the internet. Yeah. I, I find... A guy, I think, uh, in an ad, who was renting out his house. He had two bedrooms extra. He's like, yeah, I'll rent them out. I'm renting them out. I call him on the phone. I'm like, this is what I'm doing. I'm moving to San Jose. Can I rent out a room? Sure. Guy sounded super happy. Go lucky. Hope yeah. You have no fucking Ex murderer. <laughs> I can only imagine, dude. Along those lines. So I get to San Jose. What are you, 24, 25 at the time? Oh, dude, I'm not even 21. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. So... The pastry shop is like, I remember it was this really steep hill from where I lived in San Jose to get down to Los Gatos. I didn't have a car, so I, I had a bicycle. I, my shift would start at like 4.30 or 5 in the morning. So I would be riding a bike at like 4.15 in the morning down this Darkest hill to fuck. Los Gatos. I can't, anytime I rode a bike on a Friday night, 
several times I got pulled over by the cops because they thought I was like, had I had a backpack in. Yeah, right. right. So they were like, what's in your bag? Uh-huh. I'm like, I'm just going to work. Pastry officer. tools, spatulas. <laughs> just going to work, I promise. It's a whisk. <laughs> Cold as fuck at like 4.30 in the morning. My, get, my sugar diploma. <laughs> get to the pastry shop. Um ultimately i i got a crappy little car i think for like 500 yeah. it was a stick shift so i had to learn how to drive stick up a hill <laughs> just because it was the only thing i could afford but uh the bicycle thing lasted for several months until i just got too cold i'm like this is this is i can't fucking do this um and, and pascal's super old school normandy like militant like he was in the army yeah. he you know he came from this really old lineage of, of french pastry chefs Dude, it was rough. He was, yeah. he's a, like later on, I saw him in life. I saw him in Australia and like, we kind of laughed about things and, and he saw me once in Singapore and he looked at me cause he knew he put me through some shit yeah. and he looked at me and this was when I was the pastry chef at Pollen and uh-huh. came to have desserts. He looked at me and shook my hand. He's like, we're good, right? Like, you remember <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, kill me, are you? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, chef, we're good for all the shit you put me through. Yeah. Uh, but that was cool. That was a cool, that was a really cool, so, Let's backtrack to Los Gatos. So, you know, really traditional pastry shop. You know, we were doing uh, quiches in the morning, baking the moth, doing entremets, petit gâteau. You were never interested in doing hot food. Never. Never. I got very influenced, especially when I got to Scandinavia, mm-hmm. by the savory side. But it was never it was never a question. Mm-hmm. I It was never like, oh, do I want to try it? No. And when the, the few stodges I had when I was in high school in a couple restaurants, I hated and I knew right away. I'm like, yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to do the savory side. I, I, I didn't like the kind of work that I was doing. Like, obviously, for you, it's very different. It's the complete opposite. Well, it's not. I wanted to be a pastry chef when I first started. Or for a lot of chefs, they yeah, for, yeah. they look at pastry yeah, yeah. like, no, that's not for me. And, and that's that's what it was for me. Like, no, this isn't for me. This is 100 percent it, or it's or it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, so back to Los Gatos, yeah, man. It was it was a rough one. It was uh, I was there for about eight months. I, uh, I kind of cracked at one point. I couldn't take it anymore. Um, but there, man. You know, it, it, it was it was I tough. It was up a little. Though, it though. was tough, um, but it it's good because it gives you stories to talk about later on in life, which are amazing. Yeah, on podcasts, on a podcast <laughs> that you can laugh about at the time you feel humiliated yeah. as fuck. Um, but it also just makes you know you grow that second layer of skin. Like it makes you ru- tougher, rougher, maybe a little bit bitter, <laughs> but it is what it is, and, and it, it starts to shape you. The I'm not, I would never talk shit because he's an amazing man and an amazing professional. But the one thing he made me do that I was like, dude, are you fucking serious? And he was just fucking with me. Like, it didn't have to be this way. So we, we would uh, we'd make the Royale, the filling for the quiche. We would line the, the quiche molds with the dough, freeze them. And then we would fill them with like, you know, if it was mushroom mm-hmm. or onion, whatever, caramelized onions, and then pour the Royale in. And I remember I was down to my last two quiches, right? And I had slightly overfilled one. Not, not, not overflowing, just slightly overfilled. So I, the other one, the last one, had a little bit less. I'll never forget this moment, man. He walks over to me with a straw, hands it to me. I'm like, the fuck do you want me to do with a straw? He's like, I want you to transfer the quiche mix from this to that quiche and don't get it in your mouth. And this was like in front of all the staff. And I was like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? So literally, I'm sitting there trying not to get the fucking Royale in my mouth, sucking it up. With a straw. A Royale is a mixture of uh, milk, uh, cream, or cream eggs. and eggs. Yeah. Yeah, gross. Um, <laughs> from one quiche to, and I'm talking like 
a cm of fucking of <laughs> could you just take a spoon and do it no like- <laughs> that wasn't an option it wasn't an option to use a spoon it was a, a straw was the weapon you should take choice. the canal spoon that's only for that canal for that dessert and use it <laughs> so uh so i said yes chef and and did yeah, it and man. uh you know you're, you're how long were you there for uh, i lasted eight months i, I think i cracked after yeah that. And, and there were a lot of things that you know that happened and and it was a tough experience and you know again it makes you uh it makes you it makes you stronger at yeah. the end of the day i had no regrets because Obviously, I learned. Otherwise, it would be a waste of time. Um, but yeah, you just get that that layer of skin that not a lot of people get early on, and then you're like, "All right, I need I need to toughen the fuck up." Yeah. Um, and then that ultimately, you take that into your next job or several other jobs. Um, but it was cool. It was cool seeing him. Fifteen years later, when I'm the pastry chef and he's trying my desserts, and he's like, "We're good, right?" <laughs> I'm like, yes, chef. We're really good. Did you like the desserts? Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. So did you go back to Chicago then after? Uh, no, after that, it's when I got the bug to to start traveling. Yeah. Um, I, I did a stint and no, I stayed in California. I did a stint at the Ritz-Carlton Half Moon Bay. Oh, great. It was yeah, super great, close. great property. Man. And I had some friends there. Um, the exec chef there, Xavier Solomon, uh, who, I, who I haven't spoken to in a little while, but have kept in touch with throughout the years. Uh, amazing, amazing man. You know, he was always anything you ever needed throughout your career. Um, he was there. He's very well known, in, in, especially in the in the hotel industry in the U.S. And he would always bring chefs from abroad to to the Half Moon Bay to to mm-hmm. do events. And he he was also one of those people that said, "You have to go. You have to you have to you have to travel. You need to you need to go to France. You need to go to Spain." Or yeah. at the time, things were just starting to happen in Spain. So oh, there's things you know. You need to go to Japan. You need you need. He was very encouraging of like, okay, you 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 clearly love this. You have a little bit of talent, like. You need to travel. Like, don't get stuck in a little fucking one-road town in California and stay here for the next five years. Right. So I ended up staying in Half Moon Bay for almost two and a half years. Uh, it, it was cool. I, I enjoyed it. You know, I ultimately ended up working at a few hotels. It wasn't. It was never. That wasn't the path I was going to take to be a hotel pastry chef. Mm-hmm. You know, I preferred restaurants. Did you know that early? Groups. No, I think I needed to go through a couple, and then also needed to see other things abroad to yeah. realize that that wasn't the environment for me i'm glad i did it um but again you just start to meet people even if it's one or two people that you take from each location that ultimately leave imprints on you mm-hmm. so xavier was one of them and you know he was very encouraging and and when i so the first time i ever left the country to go abroad was to go to shanghai and it was it was for that same reason because i found a pastry chef there that i wanted to work for at the time he had a beautiful shop Xavier knew who he was. He's like, yeah, fucking go. Yeah. Write him right, right at the time I was sending emails like faxes. <laughs> no yeah. faxes. No, I was sending faxes. Email. I, yeah. I was sending a shit ton. Of, I sent so many emails. It was hard for anybody to ignore me because yeah. uh, they would have either they would say yes or they would say, please stop emailing please stop. me. So that was that was that was <laughs> at least I responded. <laughs> that was my mindset. Like that was it could only be one or the other. Uh, right. So uh, Eric Perez eventually. uh um, said yes. Yeah, you know what? Come, come on over. We'll take care of your visa. We'll pay you peanuts, which that's what right. it was. Yeah. Um, but literally you know, peanuts. But uh, that was awesome, dude. Like, I, I was. It was too soon, I think, to go to Asia. Like, I think it was. It had ultimately too much of a culture shock. Or? No, I think it was. It would have probably been better to have gone to Europe first, mm. learn more, yeah, yeah. and then come back to Asia and did things a little bit flipped around. So Shanghai was awesome though, because I I always since I was little, you know, I, I did a lot of martial arts when I was younger. I was always very influenced by, by that part of the world, mm-hmm. right? It was just so different, so mysterious. I loved the, uh, the, 
the mantra of like everything that martial arts exuded, the discipline, the, the Buddhism, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the spirituality. I was doing a lot of Muay Thai when I was younger, a lot of um, uh, grappling. So I always gravitated to that part of the world. I didn't know how much the food and the the cuisines and the ingredients would ultimately play a, a role in, in, in my repertoire of desserts and, and my palate, but I knew that I wanted to go there. So yeah. when I found a chef that I wanted to ultimately work for because I admired him and he was in Shanghai. I was like, I, I gotta go to Shanghai. Yeah, great. Yeah. I gotta go to fucking Shanghai. Was your mom supportive of this or? Yeah. She, again, she thought I was fucking crazy. Yeah. But she never said, she never said that to me. She never said, you're stupid. You're crazy. Don't do it. She's like, all right, if you, if you think it's good, go for it. Yeah. Like that was it. And so that, that was just the right amount of encouragement. Mm-hmm. And you know, I wasn't close with my dad and, and I'm not to this day. But I always had her to push me, right. to, to encourage me, to stick up for me. Um, she's a very sweet woman, very affectionate woman. And, and had I not had that affection from her, I would ultimately be a very different person. Sure, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's the biggest influence, you know, in my life. From, from, from being a disciplined human being, in, you know, in life to pastry, uh, to just having an, uh, an open mind about the world. You know, she, she's Latin American and a typical Latin mom would stay within her little Latin circle, probably wouldn't learn to speak English, you know, living in the U.S. Um, her friends would all be Latin. Her husband would only be Latin. Mm. And, and for some reason, my mom was a little bit different. You know, she embraced culture in the U.S. She, she learned to speak English very early on, like fluently, perfectly. The food embraced it, uh, made friends with all kinds of people f- from all over the world, mm-hmm. ultimately married a uh, Polish-American man who was, who was an amazing person. My life, I think, would be very different if we stayed in that little, very Latin yeah, of kind course, of yeah. bubble. In a corner of suburbs of Chicago. Yeah, yeah where, where the only people you, you know, you surround yourself are Latins and, and you're only speaking Spanish all day. And, yeah. and I'm glad at the same time that she forced me to speak Spanish. Uh-huh. Like, I ultimately learned to speak Spanish before English because even though I was born in the States, I, I grew up in Venezuela. I was there till I was about six or seven years old. Yeah. So then coming back to the U.S., you, you know, you, you speak Spanish, you have to go to ESL and then all of a sudden find you know, at some point English becomes your right, right, native right. tongue again. So speaking both languages, but, uh, very, uh, we back, we kind of got off track. Yeah. Where yeah. Did, so what did you learn the most in, out of Shanghai? What did you take from it? It wasn't pastry wise. We were doing nice stuff, very classic French stuff. It was, was it boring to you at the time. Then? No, it, no. In the kitchen. No, just, it wasn't boring because it was so challenging with the, the language, language barrier and yeah, there, I couldn't read anything. So Eric, cause Eric wasn't always there. Eric had a shop in Bangkok at the time and Shanghai. So he was between the two places. So I would see him some months. I would see him for a week on two weeks on. Um, he was also traveling a lot all over Asia doing demos. So I was, I was pretty much there with home team and the pastry chef who was running it. She was a very sweet lady. Um, Tracy spoke English. She had worked for Eric at the Ritz Carlton Shanghai before. And so she brought, he brought her over mm. And I think there might have been one other young guy who spoke a bit of English. That was it. There were thirty uh, Chinese people working in this in this between the bakery and the pastry side. Jeez, I was the first white guy that I ever had there. First yeah. Caucasian, first whatever foreigner, yeah, first like, non-Chinese speaking person, and they embraced me. Yeah, I, I, a couple of them I think wanted to kick my ass just to the way they looked at yeah. me. Like, why? Why are you here? Especially on the baking <laughs> side, they were a little bit weird. Like the baker bakers are a little scary. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, everyone embraced me like part of the family. And I 
learn to speak Mandarin fluently. No, amazing. No, but I, I can, I can get by. I can, I can go anywhere right now and, and hold a basic conversation in Mandarin. I can't write it. I can't read it, yeah. but I can speak because I just absorbed it and kitchen, you know, kitchen Mandarin every day. You know, I was around it every day and I was forced to learn and I fucking loved it. I would go to the markets on my days off, not even food markets, just fucking like flea markets and, and just to practice Mandarin, you know? Oh, can I buy this or how much does this cost? Or I'd like to try that like stupid things, but you do that enough, it sticks, right? And you figure it out. You know, you know the mannerisms. Yeah. You know, when I was in Spain learning Spanish, I knew, you know, I would sometimes I just go to McDonald's and eat because I didn't have any money and, you know, I knew the menu. But what I learned was the repetition of like, you know, yo quiero una hamburguesa, blah, blah, And then I knew the next thing they were going to ask was, what kind of drink do you want? That's crucial. The next thing's always crucial. The next thing is like, <laughs> what kind of drink do you want? Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, I'd like a Coke. And there would be like, para hi, para llevar. So I would learn, oh, llevar means to go, aquí. Yeah. And I would learn Spanish that way. The problem I get hung up on is if they didn't follow that same format. Like, um, that twist. You know, uh, you want a hamburger? Okay, what else do you want? A Coke. Okay, what else do you want besides Coke? For here. How do you want okay, to cook? Yeah, does oh, anyone want to cook? How do you want to cook? Wait, what? Yeah, you told me you want it here already, but I was like, ah, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's like the evolution of like being in another country and doing the day to day of like going to the pastry shop and like buying this and you're going to get this much change back and they're going to say this. They're going to ask you how your day was. You're, you're, it's very, it's very scripted, yeah. you know? And, and, and I think that's, that was probably what I loved most about my experience there, that every day was going to be a challenge, mm -hmm. but every day was going to be interesting. And I remember to during the least, right? <laughs> I remember at uh, summertime, we would, uh, I think, the, I think it was the, the old Ritz Carlton in Shanghai used to do an open air market. It was mostly like food bakery, but then also you had like artisans doing stuff. So every Sunday we would pack up a bunch of viennoiserie, a bunch of pastries, eclairs, and go to the Ritz Carlton for this Sunday market thing. And, um, that was like the only time I got to see foreigners like that spoke English because yeah. we were at the Ritz Carlton. So you're like, Oh wow. I, I remember how to speak English. Yeah. Um, but it was cool. Like I, they were, they were amazing people. They were beautiful people. They, they, they embraced me. They, they wanted me to always try, you know, they would always sit down. We'd always sit down together at the bread table and have lunch and they were always giving me their food. And sometimes I'd be like, no, no, thank yeah, you. And other okay, times you're like, like, fuck yeah, I want to taste that. Still moving. <laughs> and, uh, it was also the first and only time I've gotten really sick abroad being in Shanghai, like being too, am too eager to try all the amazing looking, smelling street food, which you don't realize at the time is probably going in oil. That's gutter been, grease. Yeah. It's like the fifth use and they bought it from a restaurant that sold it to them who then sold it to another restaurant. And that, that guy on the street's like the fifth person using that oil. Yeah, man. It's, yeah, it's pretty sketch. I, I'll, uh, it's the first and only time I think I, my stomach's probably like gone through so much crap mm. living abroad, man, that I'm like, nothing phases me anymore. But uh, yeah, like I, I remember going to work one day. I think I, I think I had like gotten some Chinese pancakes on the street the night before, something. And the next day, like I remember the guys walking over to me, and Eric was in town that week. Like, you okay? You look a little pale. I was like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Green. <laughs> and I had like no energy. Like, was not responsive. And Eric's like told one of the assistants in the I think the office, like, can you please take him to the hospital? <laughs> to the hospital. We don't need this kid to die yeah. here. And so I remember going to the hospital and like being hooked up to an IV and just sleeping it off for like 48 hours. Yeah. And then coming back like, oh, yeah, that was a good idea. Thanks, chef. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I got I was, food poisoning in Korea one time. It was the scariest fucking thing. Man. Oh, yeah. I had left Bangkok to meet my friend Christian. He was doing a dinner and uh, I landed it was a long flight. I took a whole bunch of Xanax, but I ate at the Bangkok airport um, mm. in like the 
what is it, the members members lounge, whatever, whatever, okay. where the priority pass, wherever I was. And I was like eating like dumplings and stuff. I don't know why. And had a gin and tonic. And I was just looking. I'm like, this stuff's been out here for a long time. It was like 12.30. You know, all those flights in Asia, they're all at night. Also, yeah. you can't take like 12.30. It was like 12.30 at night. There's nobody there. And I'm eating like shrimp shumai. Like looking back is like bad <laughs> such a bad idea. Especially when you're getting on like a 12 or 14 hour flight. Yeah. I don't remember how long it was. It was a long flight. Way longer than I wanted it to be. I don't think it was like... It was like five hours or six hours. Especially if you're uncomfortable. Yeah. So I, I, I took a whole bunch of sleeping pills and I and they, they were still like I got off the flight and I was still like fucked up in a daze and I got on a bus to take me to the hotel and I was still sleeping. The bus driver had to wake me up and my room wasn't ready and I met Christian there. We had a couple of coffees and then I, I um, met him at the hotel and then I was like, I don't feel well. And I, and I was like, I'll just go take a nap. I woke up and it was like the bed was just like soaked. I was just like sweating and I was crawling around. And I called, I was supposed to go to dinner. I was supposed to go to dinner that night and I called him like, dude, I don't think I can make it to dinner. It's not, it's not a fun feeling. I don't think I can make it to dinner. And then he calls me after the dinner and I'm like, I was like shaking. Yeah. You know, and I, and it, I, I was just landed in fucking Seoul, Korea. I had no idea where anything was. And I was trying to find like a 7-Eleven to get a Gatorade. I was just walking around up and down hills and there was no Google Maps. So I couldn't even map anything out. I was like, fucked. I was fucked, man. I didn't know anybody. Um, oh, I was staying in an Airbnb. I wasn't even staying in a hotel. It's in an Airbnb. And then uh, he calls me and I'm like, do I need to go to the hospital? So the chef, Sung, came and picked me up and took me to the hospital. And they gave me an IV. And I was like, oh, my God. And it's always a weird... It's a weird experience and it's eye-opening when you go to hospitals in other countries. No one spoke a fucking lick of English. Yeah. And sometimes the hospitals are, are they exceed what you thought it was going to be and they're like a million mile, miles better than what you saw in the States. And sometimes they're scary. As yeah, well. dude. It was, it was a fucking hard 28 hours, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was very bad food poisoning. Like normally you're like, oh, I got food poisoning. But like, have you ever gotten sick since? Food poisoning? Yeah. Since that time? No, I don't think so. Yeah, it was 2019. Yeah, I think I think I uh, put enough like, yeah, you're street right. Food and crap food in my body. What in my time in Asia that? Yeah, I mean, well, every time I go to Asia, you always have to get adjusted. You get like like Bali belly or something. It's just like Bali a little, belly. Yeah, but it's like a, it's like the food poisoning there. It's not really food poisoning, yeah. but you just get like sick. You take some charcoal pills, and like the next day you're fine. It's not food poisoning. It's just like getting accustomed to yeah. the bacteria that's on the other side of the planet. Okay. Or if you're flat earth or the other side of the way, you know, um, where were we? We were in Shanghai. Shanghai. So no, after I'll, Shanghai. I'll, yeah. I, we, were, if, we were having food poisoning in Shanghai. We yeah. were, but uh, no, all was good after that. Um, ultimately I knew that if I, I loved being in China and I loved when I, you know, I got to travel a little bit. So I, I'm like, wow, I love this part of the world. But I also realized if I stay here now, and don't go other places to get more training and learn from the people that are doing really interesting things in the world, I might just be an okay pastry chef here. Like I might get some jobs and then, and you know, were you considering staying there? No, but I, I had a hard time leaving Shanghai because I knew that I was going to miss it a lot. Yeah. And I did like, I was really sad the day I left Shanghai. And the reason I left was because I, I had an opportunity to go to, to my, what be, would be my first Michelin experience in, in Europe. I mean, complete change of landscape and culture. Right? Yeah, you're going yeah. from Shanghai, where nobody speaks English, going to Oslo to your first one Michelin star, very French kitchen. 
I wasn't excited to go to Oslo. It was just that, oh, I have this opportunity to go to a Michelin star how did restaurant. You, how did you get, like, <laughs> again, like people's from footprints. Shanghai to Oslo. That's so fucking whack, when dude. I was in Half Moon Bay, uh, a pastry chef, he didn't come on board as the pastry chef. This French guy came on board as, um, I think, sous chef. They ultimately never put a pastry chef there with him, and he was pretty much running the show, and I think he got tired, and he ended up taking um, this pastry chef position in Oslo at this one star, which I didn't realize until I got to Oslo that at the time it was actually a really big deal in the Scandinavian food scene. Um, it was called uh, Bagatelle. The, Mr. Hellstrom, the, the chef proprietor of the restaurant, was very much involved in Boku's Door. Mm-hmm. He was one of the head judges uh, at Boku's Door, always for Norway. He was always coaching the Norwegian candidates. Our chef de cuisine at the time was a Swedish guy that placed, I think, second at one of the Boku's Doors. So all of a sudden, it was, it was a very... French, but very hardcore kitchen with a lot of very ambitious people wanting to do a lot of big things. And and in Scandinavia at the time, Bagatelle was like the thing. Yeah. Very French, but really beautiful, you know. Um, so ultimately, I went there because this guy from Half Moon Bay um, reached out and we talked and he was like, yeah, I want, I, want, I, want, I, want, I want a Michelin experience. And he's like, well, come on over. No visa. Just, you just show up, dude. Yeah, that, that, that story man. of my stage year life. So I, I, I get to Oslo. I pretty much overstay my visa. I'm, I'm you know, I'm illegal at this point. I'm yeah. getting paid like an envelope full of cash uh, once a month. Um, I've have these two roommates, these two Norwegian women. One is uh, in the military. One is like a professional snowboarder. <laughs> like so random. Um, I work with a bunch of French dudes and a bunch of uh, Norwegians. One Swedish guy, and I'm the only. Obviously, the only American, the only Spanish-speaking one. I I felt so out of place, and I never felt at home there. It was a cool experience, but it was it was a very lonely time in my life. Yeah, very lonely. Like, yeah, you, you know, you kick it with the people in the kitchens, but you never feel like they're those people are going to be your friends. Right, and, right. You know, um, I, I think I, I enjoyed my time in Scandinavia, especially Denmark, but um, Norwegians, the, you know, obviously amazing people, but also. It's not easy to get into their circle. They're very, they're very cold mm-hmm. uh, initially, and I, I, I felt as a foreigner, it was also if you because we had a lot of French people in the kitchen and in the front of the house. So you were either with the Frenchies or you were with the the Norwegians, right? And I didn't feel like I was either. So I, it was a really lonely time, man. You know, winters were it. dark as hell. I get it. Yeah. Uh, it was a cool. Again, it was a really cool experience. Um, it opened up other doors. Yeah, the winters are tough, man. I remember I, w- I would walk to work every day. So I had about a 20 minute walk every day. And in, in winter, like, yeah, it's, that, like fucking it's not dark, easy. Man. Um, but again, you know, it shapes you. It, it you, you forget the bad, you take the good. And there's a couple of good memories from that that I'll always keep with yeah. me. And, and, you know, it was cool. When, was, did, when did you get to El Bulli? So El, I was, I had no plans of leaving um, Oslo. It was just kind of like, all right, you know, do your time here. And, and this might, what I think I really wanted to do was go to France from there. I think that, like, I, I'm surprised that, it took you that long to get to France. Well, I never worked in France. I ended up working with a lot of French people. Yeah. I never worked in France. And I think at that time I was obsessed with the, the Trois Gros brothers. Yeah. And I, for some reason I had it in my head, like, oh, I want to go work for either Michel Brauer or the Trois Gros brothers. Uh-huh. And, and actually, Mr. Hellstrom, the, the chef of um, Bagatelle, was very well connected because he had worked for Bocuse and the Trois Gros. So he actually offered to, like, send me there. But then all of a sudden, Backstory, while I was there, for months I had been writing to El Bulli, like letter after letter, mm-hmm. email after email. And it was only because I had like one small connection 
from the French pastry school to Albert Adria that for some reason that like that that got filtered through in the email and that that was like oh green light okay he's in yeah that got me in like you know very grateful I think I don't think if it if it hadn't been for the French pastry school would I have been able to mm-hmm. land in Albuy so all of a sudden I'm it's like winter I think it was just before Christmas closure of the restaurant in Norway I get an, I check my email and you know Spanish email an email in Spanish saying um Congratulations, you've been accepted to uh, as a stagiaire for this the next season. upcoming season yeah, of I'll Believe. Yeah. A really long document, you know, that you send out to everyone. And I, like I reread it a couple of times. I'm like, is this real? Spam, check my spam. Yeah. It's like it was one of those moments where I, I didn't have anybody to share with, so I was just kind of looking around the room like, holy fuck. Because obviously Albert at the time was starting to make waves. He's the fucking man, dude. And and, and but I had I I thought I had zero chance. So like I wasn't, it wasn't a thought like I, I, I sent a bunch of letters, a bunch of emails and I'm like, all right, I, I, there's no way I'm getting in. So, you know, that's when I was kind of planning. I'm like, Oh yeah, I want to go to France. And all of a sudden I, I see this email in the middle of winter and I, you know, I have to tell my pastry chef, Hey, I got in. He's like, yeah, you have to go. So it was, it was about, I think it was like four months later. So I, I did a couple more months mm-hmm. in, in at Bagatelle and, uh, you know, no one's going to be mad at you for going to Albuya. Yeah, obviously. seriously, yeah. And uh, fucking get on a on a flight. What did I... I didn't go straight to Rosas. I think I went from, like, Oslo to... I went to, from Oslo to, to Lisboa, Portugal. I had a friend there. To where? Lis, uh, Lisbon. Lisbon. Yeah. But he was living in some, like, little beach town in, in Portugal. He was a chef as well that I knew from Half Moon Bay. So I was like, hey, can I come kick it for like a week? You know, I have like a week before I need to go to El Bui. He's man, like, yeah. Bay opened a lot of doors for you. Huh? Yeah, man. I, like a lot of really cool people that I yeah. still talk, keep in touch with from time to time. Uh, so I want to stay with my buddy, um, Peter, who's uh, at the time, I think he was the exact chef of uh, the Ritz-Carlton. And not Lisbon. It was this very beautiful little estate outside of Lisbon. And he's like, yeah, I'm on holiday right now with, with uh, my wife. But here, I'll leave the keys for you. Go chill at my apartment. I'm like, okay. Sick. So I spent a week by myself in, in uh, this little Kachkai, a little beach town outside of Lisbon. It's amazing going from like the cold tundra of Oslo oh, yeah. to like landing in it Lisbon was, on the I beach. I think it like, was fuck, it was exactly what I needed. Yeah, I was alone, but I, I didn't care. I got I went to the beach every day. I I, I soaked up sun that I was missing. I felt yeah. a little bit healthier, a little bit better, a little bit more color on uh-huh. my skin, a little bit more pigment. That happened to me. I was working at Berisategi for like I think it was like maybe two months, maybe under two months. Yeah. It was like raining and cold and miserable, and I hated it. And then I jumped on a plane with the Barcelona with the Roca brothers. And it was like amazing and fun and sun. And I was like, oh, this is fucking what I need yeah. right now, man. Yeah. 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 So no, I did that for a week. And then I, I got on another plane, went to Barcelona, figured out how to get to Rosas, you know, train. It's bus. easy. Yeah, it's easy enough. Right. Yeah. It's easy, but it's daunting when you're it, you got to like, yeah, 22 totally. years old, 23 years old, whatever. Checking your ticket to make sure you're on the right train. Yeah. You don't you don't have uh, Internet on your phone at this point. Right. So yeah. it's like. This is the paper. Don't lose it or you're mm-hmm. fucked. This is how you get from A to B. Yeah. And I remember getting to Rosa's a day too early. I thought I got there the day before they were going to allow the stagiaires into their housing. Yeah. So I was like tired as fuck at this point. It was a long day of travel. I get to Rosa's. It's like 6 p.m. And I, I think I called. There was a number to call. When I think it was one of the chefs. He was already out. We... And I'm like, hey, I'm here. And where do I go? Like, oh, no, you're not supposed to be here till tomorrow. It's like, fuck me. So I, I went into this little bar, got a coffee at like 7 p.m. I'm like, do you guys know anywhere where I could stay for a yeah, night? Yeah, it's where your 
hotels. Um, somebody at the bar and was super nice was a taxi driver. And I think they felt bad for me and I looked very lost. And he actually took me to like a little hostel or mm-hmm. like a really cheap little hotel in Rosas. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you, this is, it's good. It's safe. You can stay here. It was like probably 20 bucks for the night or something. Yeah. So stayed here, there that night. And I remember the, the gentleman, I asked him like, hey, could you pick me up tomorrow? You know, obviously I pay mm-hmm. you and take me up to Kalamanjo, the, the, where, where El Bui was. And uh, that next morning he came to pick me up. I was, didn't think he was actually going to show up. Yeah. Drops me off. And, and that's uh, where that part of Fuck, my life yeah. uh, started. And, and those were, ultimately I went back a couple seasons as well. Later, like the next two, three seasons, I would always come back for a couple of weeks because Albert was like, super gracious. And, yeah. And, and, you know, with open arms, yeah, of course, you did your time with us. You can come back whenever you want, That's like, dope, yeah. for how, whatever time you want, for how long you want, you know, a week or two weeks, whatever. Those were magical six months of my mm-hmm. life, you know. Um, I met some amazing people that have gone on to be, like, world-class chefs that are super well-known, like. But more than that, it, it, it opens up your, it opened up, it was the kind of experience that opens up your eyes to not what is being done with food, but what could be done with food. Yeah, It taught you... There's no it's, it's weird to say it taught you creativity because I don't think creativity is something that you, that you can ultimately teach. It's something... You could be an, an amazing artisan. You could be super disciplined. It doesn't mean you're creative. But that place just breeded creativity. It, 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 in every facet, in every corner of that kitchen, from the chef speaking to watching Ferran at his, at his table taking writing down things you couldn't help but just be surrounded by magic it was magical that's the best way to describe it and i think to be honest you and i talked about this from people we've spoken to from their experiences at albui and obviously me being there the two best parts to be in were the the cuarto frio the cold room Mm -hmm. and pastry because you were exposed to the most amount of techniques ingredients yeah um dishes it was fun there's a lot of dishes Mm -hmm. for those two corners which were right by each other were the best part of that kitchen and then you know, you have the big ass communal table and where you, everyone's just kind of peeling nuts all day yeah, and blah, yeah. things that needed to get done. But you ultimately, if you got lucky enough to be in pastry or the cold room, you were going to have a, probably a better six months than someone else. Sure. And it was magical, man. Every day was awesome. Sick. Every day was, Albert was in the kitchen still. And, and just like the moments you got to interact with him and just seeing him like his eyes light up when he got an idea. Yeah. Or like, I remember he came in one day and he's like, I think it was Pan's Labyrinth that movie yeah it's a great movie he's like i watched pan's labyrinth i'm like yeah i'm gonna make a dessert i'm like what do you mean he's like yeah there's this rose at the end the petals fall off we're gonna make a dessert i was like the fuck are you smoking man yeah right and and then we he start, and then he starts getting into the whole uh genre of like the the mimetic he was the og mimetic you know yeah. everyone now fucking making apples and dude uh-huh. albert adria was the og of all the things mimetic right uh-huh. and that's when that kick started before that was right before he started to put up, he started to put out those kinds of desserts the season I was there that ultimately led to him making the Natura book, which basically struck this whole revolution of fucking mm-hmm. mimetic fruit and food and shit. Um, but just to see him like geek out and have fun and, and create. Have an idea and see that idea come to life. Yeah, um, and it was so different than like, so Ma- Ma- Mateo, Mateo is the pastry chef. Amazing dude. Like I've never seen anybody run a tighter kitchen. He, he, had, a, he had a hotel background, kitchen savory background, but he got put into pastry. So he ran that in a very structured, very like no corner, no leaf will be unturned. Like everything was dissected. Like everything had to be exactly the the way it was for 
service to go as smooth as it did and for all the mise en place to go to as smooth as it was and to also just babysit five stars years plus a chef de partie. Yeah, right. Like the dude was fucking, I've never seen anybody more disciplined in my life. Like yeah. the guy was a fucking machine. I, that's so much. And now he's one of the chef owners of um, Disfrutar. Yeah, he is. That's yeah. right. That's where he's But Mateo, yeah. Mateo is an amazing guy to be yeah. able to work for. Like I, I, I love this guy. He's, I have so much um, respect for him. Uh-huh. So it was really cool because you had Mateo one side and then you had Albert who just kind of like happy go lucky. And you'd always see Mateo like, Writing down, okay, what's Albert doing? Because you know that was ultimately gonna, it's definitely gonna be his That was job. gonna land on yeah, him. Yeah, so he's yeah. like, he'd be talking, he'd be like, hold on, what's he doing? Okay, yeah. okay. Well, here, here's the dish. Now yeah, make yeah. It. yeah, yeah. So that that was that was that was a lot of fun. That was really, it was it was it was magical, man. Yeah. Like I, there wasn't, you know, I I know there was a lot of people that cooks that went through those kitchens that didn't have a good experience, didn't enjoy it. For me, it was one of the best times of my life. Yeah, but it's also it's like. It's a very personal thing, you know, not enjoying something. You got to be in the right headspace. Yeah. Uh, it's not what you thought. I think a lot of times, especially those big restaurants in Europe, um, you want to romanticize about the cookbook and you want to romanticize that, uh, you know, um, Albert's going to come behind you and take your hand and show you how to, you know, temper chocolate. And uh, when you get there and you realize that this is a fucking factory and there's, 60 fucking people just like you and it's a business and it's a business and shit's got to get done and you're you know you're not the best cook in the kitchen you know you might have been like the number one guy at your restaurant somewhere you know the bistro you work that was also the first time where you get there and everyone takes a step back to be a stage and you realize oh there's some badasses there's some badass motherfuckers there's everyone here not everyone but i would say like in that kitchen at that time it gets sorted out fast 80 percent. yeah it gets filtered very quickly and and, you know and and if the ones that aren't good stick around they end up fucking making family meals right right and so you're you're surrounded by 80 percent of the people there that are solid Mm -hmm. really solid cooks or they're really fucking good yeah and so that pushes you to be better or you Everything's about who you surround yourself with, right? So if you surround yourself by amazing chefs, you're ultimately going to be an amazing chef. If you surround yourself by people that are financially gurus or they're they're millionaires or they've been very successful entrepreneurs, well, you're going to absorb that too. Everything but also if you're surrounding yourself with negative people if uh, you shouldn't do that you can't do that or you surround yourself with people that are like, dude, you need to fucking go do this, man. You need to go see the world. You need to like get serious about what you're doing Go see the world and become a great fucking person. It's like, so important ultimately to realize who you, who you, what you, you're a sponge, but what you absorb and who you absorb it from. It's so important. It's such a human, it's such a human trait though. Like I don't understand why it's so easy to go negative. It's so easy to have a negative mentality. It's almost comforting at times. And it's, it takes such an effort to like reach out your hand to help somebody hmm. to like take a moment to like, you know, have a conversation with someone, yeah. take a moment to like, well, wish someone, you know, but it's so easy to be like, ah, yeah, fuck that guy or be jealous or, you know, they don't deserve that. It's such a human thing. I don't understand why, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've come across that a lot as well. Yeah. Because helping it, it just makes you feel so good. Like helping somebody or like, leaving your day knowing that you made a difference in someone's life you yeah. know it's such a good feeling but it's also it's so it's, easy it's so easy to get four people in a room and you know one person's positive and the other three are negative and then within minutes that that fourth person's be like yeah. yeah you know what you guys are right fuck this place man you know 
It's like a cancer. It's weird. toxic. It's toxic. It's, it's toxic. weird. I wonder why that is, man. It's a human and, trait. And all you can do is be... Rise above it. Rise above it. Be smart enough to realize very quickly that, no, that's not what I want. And I need to get away, far away from it yeah. as possible. But and that takes, it takes time to like... Because like you said, it's, it's easy to just go with the masses. Yeah. Oh, all these people are saying this. I, I should just go with them right. and say this. But it takes time to figure out who you are as a person. Yeah. Like, and, it, and it's, it's not something that ever ends. I feel like I'm... I feel like I got a really great handle on who I am and where I'm at. And I'm comfortable with mm. what I'm doing and I'm comfortable in my own skin. And I'm very comfortable cooking the food that we're cooking now. And I'm happy doing it. It's very casual and people love it. And, but it, it, I'm not stopping there. I'm not saying, okay, you know, everything's going well. I'm comfortable. It's like, we need to put, I need to keep pushing myself to do more. I need to like, have more outlets of creativity I need to have more outlets of discipline. I need just not in the kitchen, just like jujitsu is great, but I also do yoga to keep the mind at ease. And I also work out. So my bones don't shatter when I'm, you know, 80 years old and you know, I eat right. It's, I don't know. There's all these things that I'm constantly doing. I'm not, it's nice to get to a place and say, you know, I just climbed this fucking mountain for the last three years to open this restaurant. And it's, we're doing well. I got Matthew. We're doing well. We're working well. We're, we're, we're making money. It's profitable. The staff's happy. It's very easy for me just to sit down and be like, yeah, okay, cool. Let's just coast now. Hmm. And it's not how we look at it. It's, you know, great. That was yesterday. What are we doing today? The success was yesterday. The failure was yesterday. What does today look like? I'm not riding the success of yesterday into today and I'm not carrying the failure of yesterday into today, even though sometimes I do and I'm working on it. But yesterday's yesterday. Today's today. What are we doing? You know, I don't know. Just constantly keep pushing. I feel like you're the same way too. You're always seeking, always out there looking for new information, always trying to better yourself. I think it's also that chasing wonder. Maybe it sounds too childish. It's, I think I'm just a very curious person. But yeah, it's, it's curiosity, you know, and always, yeah, being curious to see what, what else, not, not only kitchen, but like, and just in life, what, what else am I capable of? Mm-hmm. What else is out there? What, what else do I still need to live and discover? Who else? Maybe it's a who, maybe it's a person. It's, and, and I think there's something beautiful and scary about that to not get complacent, not just get comfortable and be like, oh yeah, this is, this is a good life. I'm just going to chill here and coast. I'm just going to chill. Yeah. You know, oh, it's okay for like a day or two. Like, oh yeah. fuck, I had a hard week. And, and, like, and, and for a lot of people, that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, but that, for people like you and me, I think that it's that never ending kind of like quest. And, and it might, might not be ever be something that you, you ultimately find, but it might always be, searching a little bit more, digging a little bit more, wondering a little bit more and, and having those experiences, having those footprints, meeting those people. And is the secret to life just constant side missions? I don't know. Man. Like we're on this, we're, we're on this game of life, this video game of life and the side missions I've, are as, what as, makes life interesting. I don't know. So one thing that I have realized as I've gotten older is, and I've left behind so much of like materialistic things, material possessions. I need so much less now to be content or happy. Like things like tangible objects in my life 
that I find value in or that I'm like, oh, wow, I'm taking that with me. They're very few now. Yeah. Very, very few. I, I live more for the experiences than, than the moment or like, oh, I need to have the best this or the car or the whatever. I, I could literally pick up and go tomorrow to wherever, you know, back to Shanghai and I would probably be able to fit my life in two suitcases. In a backpack, yeah, a, right. Maybe not a backpack, maybe a small well, yeah, luggage. Yeah, but what else do you need? Like, yeah, you know, what else do you need? I, I, would, I, I would have... You need your knife pack and some fucking pants. You, you know, know? It, it's funny, like, this is completely off topic. Um, One of my favorite books, and again, if I read a book, it's because I, I got really engaged because I don't have the attention span to read unless it's like food science stuff or now like crypto or something motivational but one of my favorite books is called it's a book called shantaram they they made a apple series on it uh, about a year ago um it's based on on true story there's obviously things have been changed a little bit but ultimately what just of it is this dude that um he's a convict in australia he's australian he escapes prison and flees to india why india i'm not sure i think somebody like had a there was a flight or a train or something. I don't know. But he gets these ID, a fake ID made. He Somebody owed him a favor like that he went to prison for, gave him some money. And these these things actually happened to him. Um, and he ends up in, in India with a backpack. And the rest, I mean, the rest of the story, the book is beautiful. It's about his time in India, how he perceives India, him having to work illegally as an Australian dude. <laughs> but one of the, the one of the lines that in the beginning of the book or, or the series, if you watch it, he talks about how he literally packed up his life in a backpack and all the objects and all the things in the world that he held precious, he could literally hold within two hands. Mm-hmm. And when he got there, he would take, he took them out, kind of like a chef, unpacked his things, lined them all up beautifully. And as if that was a shrine to his life and those things, like if anybody fucking, he could have $5 in his back, in his, in his wallet. But if anybody touched any of those things, yeah, right. they were going to fucking lose. Yeah, I get it. And, and, and I feel like those, I, I feel a lot like that. Like, there's very few things I hold tangible that I'm like, this brings value to me in my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to live without it. There's very few things. And, and it took me a long time to get to that point, I think. Yeah. But you're there now. And looking back, does it seem like, not it was all for nothing, but, and not you didn't waste time because I feel like everything that you do gets you to the point where you're at. Like Like people say like, the phrase, um, you know, the experience makes the person who you are. You know, the, yeah. the reason you had that bad experience, it makes you who you are. It's like, I don't necessarily know if it makes you the person, like having the experience makes who you are. I think the experience gives you insight and intuition and knowledge of how to make better decisions moving forward. Mm. So I think like you had a bad experience at one thing, let's just say you had a bad experience, something you're going into it. You see the bad experience coming because you know, you're a little bit more crisp on the way that you think you're a little bit more sensitive. You're a little little more sensitive. You're a little more aware to what's aware of what's going on. So I, I don't necessarily believe if like, Oh, every, everything happens. Everything happens for a reason. That's, that's the line. Everything happens for a reason. It's like, and it makes you the person who you are now. It's like, yes and no, everything happens for a reason. But it doesn't, I don't think the reason makes you the person that you are now. I think the reason gives you the tools to make better decisions on what's going on. Like you see red flags coming and you're like, you know what? I know what that is. I'm not going to go down there. You see, uh, you know, um, something else happens 
And I've been in this situation before, and this is what I did last time. So I'm going to do this instead. I'm going to get a better result. It, it, it's it's almost like and again, does that make sense? But it, sense it does. And, yeah. and I think though, I guess the way that I can rationalize that, and again, it goes back to this commonality that you and I have had that we've seeked out those experiences, lived a million more lives than most people, yeah. and all the kind of look at that as like it was training. It was all training. training. It was all being in the battlefield, not necessarily for the good, but ultimately it, it armed you it equipped you it gave you the armor how you chose to deal with the situations to then later on not need it yeah. but know how to react like right. there's a there's a quote and you, again you and i talked about this the other day it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war in a war right i'd yeah, rather be i'd quote. rather be at peace but to have all these experiences and knowledge right. and like layers of armor should i ever need it but I hope that I don't need it because I'm I'm at a place now where I know I'm a, you're ultimately a better person. And you know what you want and you know how to react to situations. Right. As opposed to going out through life, never having gone through shitty experiences, never having hurt people or gotten hurt, never had any of that. You don't know what repercussions are. You could be 40, 50 years old and all of a sudden now you're making the decisions a 20 year old would have made. Right. So yeah, I'd rather be a warrior in a garden. Yeah. I don't know. I know if it was Bruce Lee or Hicks and Gracie, or it might've been one of the Gracie's that said, could have just um, been Joe Rogan. Could have just been Joe Rogan. (laughs) Um, You know, it's like I do jujitsu, so I don't have to do jujitsu. Yes. I practice jujitsu, so I don't ever have to use it in real life because it's like that confidence knowing you can diffuse a situation, but it's also the confidence knowing you're never going to get yourself into that situation. It's, It's funny. A lot of people that have done martial arts for a long time, They've never gotten into a fight. No, because you diffuse the situation. Yeah, because yeah. you actually fear getting into a fight. And I remember when I was training a lot, um, you know, that back it was like a, a five-year spurt where I was like hardcore Muay Thai and like submission grappling. And I was, no one ever, and this was, you know, that started in high school and later on when I lived in Asia as well. But in, in high school specifically, like I went to a very diverse high school. Um we had kids from all over, lots of different personalities. You know, fights were always breaking out. There was always the, the badasses, you know, the guys that were, um, yeah, yeah, your crew on the football team. The jocks, yeah. Your right. wrestlers. Uh-huh. But then you also the had guys yeah. who weren't jocks, but were the gangsters, uh-huh. right? And it was really funny because in high school, like, I know we're getting off subject, but I wrestled and I did a lot of martial arts. And I trained at this very kind of underground Muay Thai school that at the time, it wasn't a franchise. It was like, they were the only ones doing Muay Thai in Illinois. They were the first ones that were bringing in like Japanese submission wrestling. And a lot of these guys from high school, some of them were actually on the wrestling team with me. Some of them were just like badasses, like hardcore at school, didn't give a fuck about anything, but they also trained. So it was really funny because I kind of got initiated into that. Like, all right, cool. You're, you're, because I wasn't like, I wasn't, I never picked, I didn't look for trouble. I was very quiet. I kept to myself. Uh, I had obviously my group of friends. I never acted like a badass. But being in that group of like, oh, you're cool with the wrestlers, but you're also cool with this. Yeah. The martial arts crew that uh-huh. they're like gangsters, but they respect you because you fucking spar and fight and roll with them all the time. Yeah. So when I was at school, like nobody fucked with me. Not because I, <laughs> not because they thought, oh, he's a badass. It's just there was respect from all sides. Right. And I kind of always wanted to get into a fight. It never happened to this day. It's probably better. But at the same time, I'm like, because I'm a very emotional person. I'm like, if I have to use and at that, and I think Muay Thai is a very practical 
extremely extremely practical street fight martial art i think i also got scared like man maybe if i start fucking elbowing someone really i, fucking hurt I might not be able to stop yeah you know and i and i don't want to inflict that on somebody yeah, yeah, yeah um and now it's been years since i trained and i think i think i'd like to get back into muay thai i'm yeah, not gonna should, do bjj man. like you but the muay thai i was um i really loved it well you're headed to hong kong right yeah there's I, some uh, great fucking jujitsu schools in hong kong too. there's some right? good mma schools it's in great, hong kong. yeah so what are you gonna do in hong kong um so one of my closest friends um vicky chang he has a, a beautiful one star in uh, in hong kong we've done events together in the past we were oh man i get I'll tell you about Vicky first. So Vicky's got a one-star Michelin, um, Vea. He's classically French trained, but he's Cantonese, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, he's done this really beautiful job of reintroducing forgotten Cantonese, Chinese recipes, oh, ingredients, wow. giving them French technique or modern technique. Not 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 crazy. Not, mm-hmm. There's no gimmicks. It's just beautiful food that's creative. But like, it's, it's like opening up a, a cookbook from like 200 years ago. And like bringing out a sea cucumber and bringing out like these herbs that nobody knows what the fuck is in China anymore and saying, I'm going to make Michelin cuisine with it Mm -hmm. and and doing it in a beautiful and educational and delicious way. Uh, Vicky's done really well for himself. Now he's got, uh, he has a Chinese restaurant now as well. And uh, he's got a couple other things going on. So uh, ultimately I'm going to, I'm going to be joining him um, in Hong Kong. Sick, man. To kind of do pastry for his group. And there's some other projects I'm not going to talk about that are in the pipeline with him. Um, but Vicky's a great guy. I've done pop-ups with him in his restaurant. Him and I did Art Basel Miami, which was a fucking trip, uh, before COVID. It was a couple, it was, I think it was like a year or two before COVID. It was one of the Art Basel Miami events. So this woman who I met in Korea at an event who lived in Los Angeles, who's a florist, somehow organizes events abroad. She reaches out to me. She's like, Hey, do you want to come do Art Basel Miami? I'm like, sure, but I want to bring a chef along. She's like, yeah, yeah, I need, we need to do sweet and savory. I had no fucking idea what I was getting myself into. So I, I reached out to Vicky. And I'm like, hey, man, you want to do this with me? Like, I was living in Japan at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, Vicky, you want to go do, do this with me? Like, they're paying pretty decent. And like, it's our basil. Why not, right? Yeah. Like, we get flown out there. He, you can bring an assistant. I can bring an assistant. And uh, every, we're going to have everything we need. Right. <laughs> so... I have no Famous I, last words. So what we were going to do, we were there to create a cerebral dining experience with artists. So we had, it was, it was one of those experiences where like music was being played throughout courses. There were projections on screens. We had um, a, 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 this amazing performer. I, can't, I don't even know what the hell you would call him. Like doing all kinds of weird things with his body, but also having, putting on skits. That was one of the courses. Um, Jesus. We had uh, one room before people went into the dining room. We set up um, like an edible room. So like some of his savory food was like literally like you'd go into like the the bushes and you'd like start to pick something and eat it, you know, a mushroom, whatever. I had like collages of hanging like candies and, and pastries that look like massive origami flowers. And in the center of the flower was this little like fucking snowball. Yeah, dope, yeah. That, that the end was beautiful. So prelude to that yeah. was a fucking nightmare so we get we get to miami we're fucking jet lag as fuck we're both coming from from asia my assistant um kaylin was coming from from uh, melbourne next day they're like okay we're gonna pick you up at the hotel um, the lady was staying at the hotel with her entourage we're gonna take you to the 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 kitchen that we've rented out for you to do your prep 
we get there. It's not a, it's not a kitchen. It's like um like an empty warehouse that does fucking raves that had a kitchen. So it's like, all right, it's not the end of the world. As long as we have our stuff and we're going to have refrigerated trucks and, and we could, we could, ingredients, we could make it happen. We get there. She's waiting for us. She's like, we got a problem. I'm like, what do you mean? What's the problem? She's like, yeah, they, they, they won't let us in. They won't let us use the, the, the facility. They, they, uh, they thought we were here for something else. Like it was something shady was going on. We didn't get the full story, but ultimately we were hanging around for two hours cause we couldn't use that kitchen. So now we're like, you know, we're doing this big ass fucking event in like three days, two, two or three days from that. So that, that day, the rest, all of us go back to the hotel. Essentially we lose a day of prep. Yeah. And wow. she's trying to figure out where the fuck we're going to wow, prep. Wow, man. So somehow she reached out to some people in a catering company that she knew from LA that had connections in Miami and we get a makeshift catering kitchen that is in a, it almost looked like a storage unit. Mm-hmm. Not your ideal situation, but okay. It was a kitchen-ish. We go in there, we prep. Fucking kitchen catches on fire. <laughs> so we have to get out of the kitchen. Not to the point where every, like Holy a part shit, of it, man. we had to go in there like fucking, you know, fire extinguishers, yeah, yeah, yeah. police come, everything kill a couple hours over time but like vicky and i are looking at each other like is this really fucking happening like wow, it's hot dude. as fuck we're like in in, in aprons and shorts because you, it's just yeah, it's you're Miami. sweating your yeah, balls right. off literally trying to prep dude I, we we ended up prepping there for two days somehow we had we had this catering company step in and help us luckily because we would have been fucked then the night before we go to the actual event space which is not a kitchen we're literally setting up like makeshift refrigerators speed racks fold out tables, making them into a kitchen. Like we're, the whole time we're just, the, those kinds of moments where you look at each other and you're like, fuck, 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 but you got to keep moving. Christ, and then ultimately the fucking thing like goes off without a hitch. And at the end of the night, we were exhausted. We sat down for some food. They ordered us food and we all look at each other like, let's get the fuck out of here. Job. Let's, <laughs> let's go back to the hot, the yeah, hot right. tub. It was funny. Cause that trip, the hot tub was our thing every night. Like we were all, we were so pissed off at the world. Like, Let's go into the jacuzzi and we would all just kind of drink a glass of champagne. And that's smart. And again, you don't really remember the bad. It's fun to talk about it. But at the end, it was like, fuck, that was really cool. Yeah. We got to fucking cook at Art Basel, Miami. We had some artists there with us doing some shit. That was cool. So anyways, yeah, Vicky, Vicky and I shared a lot of uh, experiences like that. And uh, so when the opportunity came up to be able to do something with him in Hong okay. Kong. And you leave in a couple weeks, no? A couple months. Yeah, a couple months. All right. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Asia. I always felt a lot more comfortable there than I did in the U.S., um, Hong Kong in particular, mm-hmm. you know, I lived in Tokyo, I lived in Singapore, I traveled all over Asia for work. Hong Kong, for some reason, was always a place that stayed very near my heart. Yeah. It always, I always felt more at home there than I have in most places of the world. I still, to this day, have very good friends from the culinary world, from the CrossFit world. Like, mm-hmm. that's how, that's where I really kind of, like, went gung-ho on CrossFit. Um, the, f- I mean, like, I, I... I lived there twice and I always lived in the same neighborhood. So like I can, I could literally close my eyes and I can walk around the neighborhood Shenwen where I lived and I, I could tell you all my spots. Yeah, I could tell yeah, you where I would go once a week to get my, um, my red bean pancake that mm-hmm. I fucking loved that I was the only white guy buying those at this <laughs> local bakery. I knew where to go for my coffee cause there were some good coffee roasters. I knew where to go to this hole in the wall Thai place where you could get the most amazing papaya salad and fucking, 
whole roasted fish for like eight dollars yeah you know that only locals would go to or like food geeks uh-huh. so that all like when i when i think of hong kong i think of something very familiar to me more so than being in fucking illinois or yeah Chicago. it's crazy man that, and it's crazy, crazy that the places that can be so foreign to somebody else could feel so like home to welcoming you. yeah and you know a lot of things kept me from going back to asia i was you know i was married for some time and and now to divorced uh three years yeah. ago um I wouldn't have gone back to Asia had I, you know, still been in that situation sure. for for other reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm 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 happy that I, I get the chance to go back home. <laughs> in Good essence. for you, man. So, well, if people want to find you on social media, is where they look. I'm so not active on Instagram anymore. All right, so I hate Instagram. It. I um, I have another part of my life that is the degenerate anonymous part of my life so i'm on x a lot for yeah. for non-pastry reasons yeah, and the whole crypto I'm, that's a whole nother podcast man. that's a whole nother podcast we're gonna, to, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to fly to hong kong for the next yeah the part no two i'm, of the I'm podcast, deep man. i'm deep down the crypto rabbit hole <laughs> like we would need another hour because i can yeah. geek out on that um right you know but long story short i have i started a small business with uh i will let me let me just give you that yeah plug the business no nah, i'm not plugging the business i started a little side uh you could, you could call it a crypto startup but the funniest thing is my crypto journey has been long. It's been a roller coaster. It's been a lot of ups and downs, a lot of painful moments, a lot of good moments. But ultimately, I, I went, and it sounds so funny when you say it out loud. I went into business with two guys that I've never met in my life. One is an Iraqi guy who lives in Sweden. One guy is an, uh, he's an Israeli Jew living in Israel. And then there's me in the middle, what the American. Combo. And the beautiful thing is, we've now known each other for about a year. It wasn't until like, probably two months ago that we actually all gave each other our real names. Yeah. Cause we all went under like, you know, in the crypto world it's very degenerate, yeah. very like anonymous, very like your, 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 your big prof- dick gangster. Yeah. Your, prof- your, your profile <laughs> pick is probably like some AI generated yeah. fucking lizard. I'm a Panda. So I, you know, I, I go by crypto Panda. Uh, so it wasn't until like th- two months ago that we all kind of like, yeah, this is my name. This is my name. This is my name. But it, you know, the beautiful part about it is that, that whole part of my life that opened up doors and introduced me to so many amazing people that I actually interact with now on a daily basis that I actually consider friends. Yeah. And these two guys that I'm doing this with, they're amazing. And now once, you know, one being from Iraq, one being, um, you know, with everything going on with Palestine and, and, and Israel, not once did they ever make their relationship about that. And mm-hmm. that was beautiful. Their commonality was crypto and surrounding themselves with other geeks, crypto geeks and helping other people financially help change their lives and that was what we stuck to not right once on. have they ever in the entire year that we've known each other have i seen them talk about everything going on in that part of the mm-hmm. world and, you know with all the, the the politics and religion that and that's fucking beautiful it's refreshing and and there's me in the middle and like and we, we uh, the venezuelan american hong kong <laughs> yeah with uh, with an israeli guy and, and an iraqi guy from sweden who We've never seen each. Well, we've actually like zoomed. Uh, yeah. Not zoom. We've been on our Discord live, so I, I know what they look like now. But for a long time, we didn't know our names. We didn't know what we look like. We're just like we. It went off this. Maybe it sounds naive, but like I think you learn how to read people over time as you get older. And some people just give you this aura where you say this person's gonna screw me over. I don't trust this person. And other yeah, people, yeah, yeah. You you could know for literally an hour and say there's something about this person and I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with that gut feeling and, and, and open up to them and let them into my life. And which I did, which we all did. 
we we had faith in each other that we were all going to be decent human beings and it's been beautiful like we run you know we we started this business about a month ago we it was in the works for a while we have uh about 100 members now you know that are that are paying a monthly subscription and all those people now in that group are people that i look forward to to checking in on every day they they've become my it's my digital oasis and some of these people have become my very close friends and i may never even see their faces yeah which is fucking crazy so but that's the world we live that, in that's man. another podcast another man. podcast that's another podcast thanks for hanging out brother dude i could chill here all night i know right the couch is dangerous yeah awesome i'll uh i'll see you tomorrow we're gonna we'll be doing tomorrow for the pastry we're doing two more throwdown. two days of uh pastry throwdown <laughs> yeah, in your restaurant at Iggy's, yeah Love cool it. brother thanks my friend thank you brother